0: i <laughs> to another episode of the Film89 podcast. As usual I'm Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and this one is episode 29 and tonight I'm joined by a man who wears many hats, that of Filmmaker uber cinephile and writer on film and prolific podcaster being the host of the brilliant Flixwise Canada podcast. It's his third time gracing us with his dulcet tones here on Film 89 after his episodes on John Carpenter's The Thing back in episode three and then again for our Predator episode which is episode 16. It is of course Mr. Martin Kessler. Martin welcome
1: back. Thank you for having me back it's uh, great to be on again.
0: On tonight's episode, we'll be reviewing season five of Netflix's Black Mirror, as well as giving an overview of the series in its entirety so far. And in keeping with a recurring theme of Black Mirror, we'll be discussing our all-time favourite video games. But before we start, and then I later forget, I'd just like to give a shout out to a few people I met on my recent trip to Florida. That's Josh and Katrina from Flower Mound, Texas, and Damon Schuler from Lakeland, Michigan. They're big fans of the podcast, and it was by pure chance that they recognized my droll voice when I was cooing. <laughs> with my sons in two of the parks in in the Disney Resort. So as promised, big shout out to you guys. I know that Damon's a big fan of Black Mirror. So Damon, this episode's for you. So Martin, what have you been up to of late, podcast related, that
1: our listeners may want to check out? Uh, I just had a recent appearance over on the Wrong real podcast, talking about uh R-rated superhero movies, and I've got some new Flix Voice Canada episodes in the works, including uh I think I'm gonna be talking about Satoshi Khan, I'm gonna be talking about the classic silent serial uh Phantomas so some exciting stuff to look forward to satoshi khan is he the one that did paprika yes yeah the yes. japanese animator yeah
0: right cool
1: also uh if uh anyone listening is into czech film uh you might hear my voice on an upcoming audio commentary uh for a blu-ray that's a release of a restored classic czech film um, not sure if I can say what, but that should be coming out in the next few months. So that's that's been exciting. Lots of stuff. I'm keeping busy. <laughs> How did you find recording and audio commentary? Because obviously we've done
0: two now as episodes. And, you know, the way we found is pretty much as soon as you hit record, you don't want to be editing around it. Because you want it all to mm-hmm. be obviously in sync with the film. And it, it, once you get going and find your foot in, I think it you know it, it, it's great. But... You're always thinking in the back of my mind, don't stumble up, don't mess up. Right. You know,
1: how how did you find it? This was a little bit different. It went a bit longer so it could be edited down. It was sort of planned out that way, but... It was still sort of nerve wracking you feel like, oh, th- this is going to be the thing that people hear, maybe above anything else, like you know if you do a podcast sometimes it 's cool to be the only podcast episode uh, on a particular film or topic, but sometimes it 's a little bit stressful knowing that i, I don 't want to be the one making some mistake or anything like that 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 would be on me, but uh, it was fun to do yeah,
0: yeah, um, I think uh, one of our past episodes, Gary smart, the um, the documentary producer. He'd actually done audio commentaries for Shout Factory on Robocop two and three, and was basically oh, I think I've heard those. yeah, yeah. He was basically yeah. saying in, in the episode that you know that they they had some guidelines from from Shout Factory about what they could and couldn't say, and the fact that it was not so much guided, but they they said, look, guys you know we know RoboCop 3 is a bit of a mess to say the least and you know RoboCop 2 has got its issues so they were pretty much told that they had to kind of keep things a little bit sort of away from being critical but was it was it similar with um, the one you're
1: doing the the outline's pretty loose. I was enthusiastic about the film anyway, so it wasn't like I would be uh, trash-talking it on its own commentary, so that that wasn't really a problem. It it was more just like a lack of sources about the film, made it a little bit tricky to talk about, but I I tried to do my research, and that's always a fun part of it for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, as soon as you can, Martin, Martin, obviously let us know what it is. Of course. Oh, and yeah, um, you did the, the recent Wrong real live stream about um, the, the R-rated superhero movies. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I was, you know, I've, I've participated in a few of them so far, actually, you know, on, on the, you know, the actual live chat room. And I've got to say... I'm sorry the timing was bad for you. No, no, I was actually in Florida. It was on... Um, it was on oh, u s yeah it was on u s time right. so i i was i think it was about um ten o'clock at night wasn't it uh
1: yeah I think that's when it started
0: yeah we you know we'd had a bit of a busy day you know going around Disney, so I was a little bit tired, but you know I kept myself up for the extra hour and a half just to make sure I participated in that, but just like the rest of um james's recent uh, youtube live streams. It was immensely fun especially being able to participate live and, and chat with all the you know the wrong real crew great fun i'm really looking forward to um more more of the same from wrong real yeah,
1: me too i i really enjoy just hanging out in the chat room and watching other people talk like the dune episode or you know there's been a couple now there there are a lot of fun yeah
0: Okay, so tonight we're going to be talking about Netflix's Black Mirror. It's a British science fiction anthology television series created by Charlie Brooker. It's now run by Brooker and Annabelle Jones, who have served as the programme showrunners uh, in its continuing movement from Channel 4 over to Netflix. It examines modern society, in particular with regard to the unanticipated consequences of new technologies and their effects upon us. Episodes are standalone usually set in an alternate present or the near future, often with a dark and satirical tone, though some of them are more experimental and lighter in tone than others. So Martin, how did you first come to see Black
1: Mirror? I think when I was in university, I had an acquaintance who had an English family and he was sort of saying, you you have to check out this show. I think you'd really like it and showed me. Uh, I think then only the first season had just come out or had maybe come out a year prior because uh, the second season wasn't even available yet or hadn't even been released yet so i started off pretty close to the beginning of, of when the show was first airing and then gradually kept up and I, i'm somebody who loves uh, the twilight zone and outer limits and these types of science fiction dark anthology shows uh, so i of course gravitated towards it it kind of fills that gap for a modern audience and uh, i think there's the two uk seasons including a christmas special which i especially like and then there's the sort of later netflix seasons which on one hand, are a little bit more lavish. You can tell that there's more money behind them. They, they bring in big stars sometimes. and uh, But I, I feel like they're a little bit more of a mixed bag than the early seasons. I mean, the, the nature of an anthology show, you're going to have a mixed bag no matter what, I, I think. But uh, maybe that's especially felt in in some of these episodes that are more recent, including the ones we're going to be talking about.
0: Yeah, you know, the show's got a bit of a strange sort of sporadic release schedule. I think season one was mm-hmm. three episodes. That was released between the 4th and the 18th of December 2011. And that and that was back when it was a Channel 4 TV show. And I think it, was, it wasn't was until February 2013 that the second season aired. And both the first and second seasons are just three episodes. And then you had, almost two years later then, in December 2014, you had the, the first Christmas special. And then, obviously, the show moved over to Netflix. You've got seasons three and four, which are both six episodes. They were in October 2016 and December 2017. And then you had the recent standalone film Bandersnatch in December 2018. And then, obviously, most recently, season five, which was back to being three episodes. So, yeah, you know, the, the release schedule and, and the spacing of it and
1: you know, the length of each season is a little bit sort of you know all over the place, really. Sure. I mean, just from what you were describing, that means we're uh, almost eight years into the show and there's something like 21 episodes total. So it's uh, including Bandersnatch, it would be maybe uh, 23. Does that six, sound right?
0: Seven. Uh, I'm just trying to do the math very quickly. <laughs> 22 plus one, if you count Bandersnatch, which obviously it is. It's got number of episodes, 22 plus one interactive film.
1: OK, so th- there's not a whole lot to watch, really, if you go and you can probably binge it pretty quickly. But because it's so varied, you kind of get a wide variety of stories and concepts. A, a lot of them kind of end with uh, people being trapped in virtual reality. That seems like every other episode sometimes. Yeah. But
0: Yeah, there's, you know, there's definitely a recurring theme there. And, and Brucker himself said, I think he was working on the, the series or producing this, the series, How TV Ruined Your Life. And he he pulled the, the title of Black Mirror from his his experiences on that show. He was quoted as saying, "If technology is a drug, and if it does feel like a drug, then what precisely are those side effects?" And he said, "This area between delight and discomfort is where Black Mirror is set. Uh, you know, the Black Mirror of the title is the one you'll find on every wall, in every house, on every office desk, and in the palm of every hand. It's the cold, shiny screen of a TV, of a monitor." Of a smartphone you know it's a really clever concept and idea really that not only is it a sci-fi anthology show like you know as you mentioned the twilight zone and the outer limits and, and tales of the unexpected um all of which were you know brooker has been quoted as saying were huge influences on the show but it's all, it also gives it that sort of narrative through line of each story whilst mostly unconnected has got that connective tissue of being a sort of you know warning a cautionary tale about you know our increasing reliance on technology and then some of them which are set in contemporary times are more about social media the media in general you know especially you know the the very first episode oh
1: with the prime minister and the pig
0: (laughs) yeah now did did you watch black mirror chronologically and if so was that obviously the first episode you saw
1: i'm pretty sure that was the first episode i saw and i couldn't believe that that's the one that sort of turned out to have some predictive quality to it that turned out to be a little bit true. Now, uh, yeah,
0: apparently, um, (laughs) Charlie Booker is a very astute man. And, you know, a lot of people were like, all right. So is the premise of that episode just coincidence? Obviously, you know, we later had a bit of a, a scandal relating to a former British prime minister. But, you know, knowing Brooker as I do, I'm pretty sure he had some insider information when he um, actually wrote that episode.
1: That's possible. It's sort of too specific not to. But uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I probably I might have seen the whole first season in one night. Maybe it, it's that kind of show where once you get sucked in, it's easy to kind of watch whatever's out there, which makes it frustrating when there's only three episodes yeah. a season. I, my favorite episode, it, it's also in the first season, the uh, 50 Million Merits episode with Daniel Kalua, It's still probably my, my favorite now. And that's the one where they're in this dystopia where you can earn currency through watching ads and cycling it there's this uh sort of talent show almost like a um, america's got talent or x factor kind of a show and what makes that episode really especially interesting to me is it kind of takes it one step beyond this sort of technological nightmare and uh you know that this horror of living in a future where it's like um, you know that the apps where you have to it's free but you have to watch an ad. <laughs> it's like you know a reality where that sort of thing's taken to the extreme. But it it gets into sort of bigger questions about you know how everything can be kind of co opted or you know how even our own outrage against the system can be co opted and sold back to us. Yeah. And I, I I find that episode's really profound. And you know for you know as many episodes as there are. Like a lot of them, it could kind of come down to, like, oh, you know, technology's bad, and you know, maybe not necessarily get at some kind of more intricate truth. But my, my favorite episodes, I feel like, you know, maybe dig just a tiny bit deeper. And I, there's one or two other examples in the show that that's one I like a lot.
0: Yeah, the you know, I started and I watch them chronologically, and actually fairly recently it was um, Leighton Winston who writes the film '89. He actually wrote a review of Bandersnatch. He messaged me, he said, Oh, Sky, there's um, there's a draft I need you to have a look at and edit. And he said it's the new Black Mirror episode. And I thought, oh great! I've never actually watched Black Mirror. It was probably <laughs> it was probably top of my to do list of, of TV shows to watch. Neil Gaskin had been recommending for ages that I watch it, and he'd pretty much given up. And I was just like, oh look, Neil, you know, I'm too busy. I'll, I'll give it a go. And then I, I read, edited, and, and posted Leighton's review of Bandersnatch. Which, given the fact that it's interactive and each person gets a sort of different experience, you know, your viewing of, of the sh- of the episode could have been different to mine. It didn't really spoil anything, so I thought, you know what, I've actually managed to sort of read his piece on the on the on the episode there without spoiling it. But I'm so intrigued now; I've got to just dive into the show. So I basically blitzed up until that point all four seasons of Black Mirror in the space of about a week or two. Completely fell in love with it. You know, it's got an, a really dark tone, and that first episode, the national anthem. Yes, you know. There, there's another member of the film at E9 Crew who has watched that episode and, and, and just turned to me. And again, that was on my recommendation afterwards. And he said, I don't really know what to make of that. And <laughs> to be honest with you, I found it a bit fucked up. And I said, yeah, but did you find it funny or were you shocked at how just seriously it took something that on paper, you know, it just sounds so ridiculous. And, you know, for people who, you know, if you listen to this now and you haven't watched Black Mirror, turn us off, go away binge the entire series I, you know I, I'm fairly confident that you'll be glad that you did it's an amazing show and then come back because we are going to be spoiling things you know that premise of a member of the royal family is kidnapped uh, a ransom video is put out whereby the the kidnappers are requesting that the prime minister has live unsimilated sex with a pig you know I was thinking oh Sky come on really you know you're actually finding this darkly bleakly comic when, you know, let's be honest, it's, com- it's played completely not for laughs at all. That's what makes that episode so effective is the fact that it doesn't veer off into, you know, sort of satirical parody, and it could have just seen how ridiculous the whole situation is, and it, it's played completely straight.
1: Right, I, I think there is a satirical element to it, oh, yeah, obviously, yeah. but it's so deadpan. Like, I, I think that's what makes that work so well.
0: Yeah, that that's, <laughs> that's Charlie Brooker all over. Yeah. For people who don't know Charlie Brooker's work outside of Black Mirror, he, you know, he used to write about video games. You know, back when I was, you know, a kid into video games, I used to read stuff, you know, in magazines that Charlie Brooker used to write for. You know, later on, he became very well known as a comedy writer. But again, and he even does this this annual sort of rundown of the year. It's like a, I think it's it's a channel 4 sort of year in review show that Charlie Brooker has done now every year for well, God knows how long. And, and it is like a laugh-out-loud funny, but also incredibly dry and, and sort of tongue-in-cheek programme. But yeah, you know, that first episode, knowing that it was Charlie Brooker, I could see the, the, the humour there, but you, you've really got a scratch of the surface to get to it. It, it. it was pretty messed up, and it was that part I thought, you know what? I, I'm already sold. And like you, Martin, I've got to say, I didn't particularly like 15 Million Merits. I, I don't know okay. why, but it's one of my sort of... And you know, I don't think there is a bad episode
1: of Black Mirror. Well, I think it's also the kind of show where, because it's so mixed, there's going to be some episodes that work for some people and some episodes that work for others. Like that's the kind of show that it is. Yeah.
0: But you know, obviously, you mentioned the similarities with stuff like the Twilight Zone and um, sure. and, and the Outer Limits. And you know, I think Charlie Brooker he's done a lot of what Rod Serling did back when he you know created the the, tw- the Twilight Zone. As a sort of way of dealing with which were at the time controversial topics things which maybe would have fallen foul of censorship because obviously tv censorship censorship back then was you know a lot more harsh and strict (laughs) brooker has done you know a similar thing to what serling did And, and what serling did was he sort of masked a lot of controversial topics under the veil of science fiction Yes, a lot of these episodes of Black Mirror aren't contemporary. They're all they're set you know, about five minutes in the future. But for me, I think the ones which are most terrifying, and Black Mirror is mostly a sort of science fiction show. But I do think a few episodes have got you know quite overt elements of horror. You know, I think there's there's none more frightening than the ones that show us to be about five minutes away from this sort of dystopic sort of future where technology has got a grip of us. And I think at the moment we're in in the point where we're like. We're almost there, and I think for me that's the thing that makes Black Mirror so terrifying because it's not something that's you know incredibly far-fetched. Yes, you've got certain things like you know the technology where a person's consciousness can be uploaded, you know, into a computer. I think we're way off something like that. Sure but you know one of, for me one of the most terrifying episodes because it's just so kind of like you know we are almost there is the episode Nosedive the the opening episode to season three with Bryce Dallas Howard that is just terrifying because we are right. almost there we're obsessed with social I, media I think we are
1: there I mean like you said a lot of great science fiction it's not really about a predictive future it's about now and it, it just uses science fiction to sort of exaggerate certain qualities to make us aware and I, I think that's a perfect example of how we <laughs> stick a number on people you know and it it does sort of feed into uh like social media cancel culture and that sort of thing and people's followers you know if if you have some more clout because you have more followers on twitter or that that sort of stuff i mean you know people already live in that Uh, it's just sort of creating a, a science fiction premise based on that yeah, and you know, even myself, I you know, I used to have a very sort of probably kind of
0: hypocritical view of social media now, because it was it wasn't until two thousand fifteen that I I even dipped my toes into social media in any form. You know, I wasn't on Twitter, I certainly wasn't on Facebook. It was only through a joint Twitter and you know, which has turned out to be a great thing for me. It's led to me you know, writing about film, meeting a load of people through which we've now started our own website. And then, you know, that in turn snowballed and, and led to the whole podcasting gig. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful of social media, but also I can see how toxic you know it can become, how addictive it can become. Yes. You know, you know, I, I try myself to limit, you know, how many hours a day I'm on social media. These sort of cautionary tales, like Nosedive, show that social media is based on a sort of rewards-based system. The fact that, you know, you get new followers, you know, you get um, hits on your tweet, you get likes, retweets, things like that. You tweet something out and it snowballs and it becomes, you know, really popular. Or, you know, you get you know, some famous celebrity retweeting or commenting on your stuff. There is a sort of drip feed addictive quality to it. I think some of the very best episodes of Black Mirror actually highlight the things which are going on now. Maybe give them a little bit of a technological boost because I think in the episode Nosedive, mm-hmm. there's, there's also eye implants and, and things that we'd seen in previous episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're not there just yet. And it's also a highly sort of stylized episode. You've got these people living in there, you know, sort of perfect picket fence, sort of cul-de-sacs. And, you know, people are are aspiring to, you know, getting this this higher rating because everything is rated out of five. And and the, the higher your social standing rating is based on your you know, social media account, the more actual real life perks you get. So it's actually, it's kind of like, you know, life as a video game. It it turns your life into an interactive experience where you get extra kudos, extra merit for
1: having positive interactions with people. Sure. I mean, they talk about now in China implementing this sort of uh, social credit system that's basically identical to that episode. It's uh, it's real. It's yeah. not just uh, you know. Of course, there's like technological exaggeration and invention for for the show, but again, it's getting at something very real. I, you know, like a lot of technology, um, especially when you explore it through science fiction, I think it's important to sort of see both the positive and negative qualities a lot of technology it enhances our lives but there's also a downside and it's partly you know for ourselves examining if these trade-offs are worth it you know i think that's sort of one of the unifying things about the show I, of course technology plays a role in all these episodes but trying to see that balance of how it's not just uh, it'll make your life worse it's the ways that it makes your life worse as it's making it better and how we might actually you know instead of having it forced on us actually pursue it and adopt it and uh, you know take on these lives that are in hindsight or with some distance a little bit uh, frightening or horrific <laughs> willingly yeah yeah it's been pretty much in the last
0: Twenty to twenty-five years, you've had the birth and the development of the internet. You know, then you've had you know the the sort of introduction of, of mobile phones, and then which then later became web-based phones with cameras on, and then you know you had the, the, the birth of social media, and then smartphones, and literally in a very small space of time, twenty years if that technology the the sharing of information the interconnectivity of people has expanded exponentially and yes. I, I read some crazy statistic a few months back that said i think it's in the last maybe 5 or so years more photographs had been taken than since you know it, it, the entire time since the development of photography because there was this sudden surge that everyone was walking around with a camera and and people are photographing their lives things like Instagram, which are obviously, you know, image-based social media sites. People are just putting their entire lives in the digital world for everyone to see. And, you know, I thought, well, yeah, of course, that, that would make perfect sense. Yeah. You know, if, if all of a sudden, in the case of, a you know, over the course of a, a few years, maybe 10 years, people go from, you know, digital f- photography... You know, film-based photography to actually having a camera just in your back pocket all the time and then these incentives to actually take pictures and upload them to social media of course you're going to have a statistic like that you're just going to have an exponential increase in people recording
1: their lives i mean it's going to create a lot of problems for mm. preservation curation when you have this like vast mm. abundance of material from a specific point in time there's going to have to be people who sort through what should last and not just be a mm. sort of background junk and filter through what should actually be preserved and last into the future like i think uh, people don't realize it now but you know in a relatively short amount of time i think so much information that's available on in the internet or files or interesting videos it's going to be completely lost because there's no mechanism for preserving it but uh, that's it's a whole other issue what's the name of the guy that um, is in charge of twitter um oh right
0: jack dorsey Right he's he yeah he's he's the he's the co-founder and CEO of Twitter. He was on an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast recently. He came on and even in you know by, by Joe Rogan's admission the episode didn't go particularly well. Dorsey isn't the most sort of um, talkative of people and you know I think the episode came under quite a bit of flack for just not being up to Joe Rogan's usual standards in fairness to Joe he actually got Jack Dorsey back on with um, a guest who was actually brought on to sort of um, act as a counterpoint to Joe Rogan actually hit Jack Dorsey with the difficult questions about Twitter and in particular their rules regarding um, censorship and, and, and the sort of locking of people's accounts when they step over the line you know, of the Twitter guidelines and actually Jack brought a member of their legal department on and I it, it haven't <laughs> seen this it was a. No, it was. It sounds like it's going to be a recipe for disaster,
1: <laughs> right? And
0: you know, Jack Dorsey, in fairness to him, he came across a lot better than than Mark Zuckerberg has in in articles I've read and, and interviews I've seen. And he was there to say, look, what we're doing is trying to maintain this huge thing, this thing which has become bigger than what we ever thought it would be. And what you've got to understand is a lot of our sort of um, holding of accounts and, and accounts being locked. Are done by bots it's done by an algorithm they were being quite open and honest about it, saying, Look, we don't always get it right. You have to understand the amount of traffic that goes through Twitter each day is staggering and you know I can't even begin to imagine you know the the, the rooms or, or the you know the, the the factory size sort of servers you would have to have just to manage Twitter alone. We are expanding from an information technology point of view at such a rate or have done and whether it'll peak or reach a plateau, I don't know but it, it's just absolutely mind boggling you think of the fact that people have got multiple Twitter accounts, facebook accounts you know they're they're on Instagram, and the amount of traffic that goes through every day just for one person alone or, or the amount of information that is available to us each day how does How do you manage that and what what you know what would ever happen if one of these servers god forbid was was subject of a terrorist attack. You know, an EMP device or, or something like that. It, w- it would completely bring that aspect of social media you know, to its knees.
1: I mean, it's scary enough w- when it works. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be like going cold turkey, maybe. But I mean, that feeds a lot into one episode in particular in this new season. Like, there's a, a Jack Dorsey like character played by Topher Grace that comes up in. In that episode, he's sort of a amalgam of you know Mark Zuckerberg and him, and, uh, and maybe a few others. He's that kind of caricature.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Well, jumping ahead to season five. Yeah. There's, <laughs> sure. You know, you, you've got three episodes. The first one, Striking Vipers, and, and we've got to talk about the cast in Martin.
1: Yeah, the casts are getting. Uh, I mean, you know, they, they might as well be movies. The lengths mm. of the episodes are all pretty close to feature length. Like they're over an hour each one of them i think striking vipers you have anthony mackie of course from hurt locker and all the marvel films and these and this episode i kind of feel like has the most going on in it although i don't know if it necessarily comes to a satisfying conclusion it's kind of the most intriguing episode i I have a feeling this is going to be the one that people talk about the most you know it deals with virtual reality it deals with relationships it deals with sexuality and it kind of brings up all these issues and you know then it gets a little bit messy and I'm not sure the people making the show know exactly what to do with it all
0: well yeah you know I, I, <laughs> I thought it was going down a, a particular route um, and obviously yes. now like, like you said we're, we're not going to be avoiding the spoilers we're going to be talking about these episodes okay. in, in depth obviously you know the episode is about two guys Danny and Carl and Carl introduces Danny to a virtual reality version of a fighting game that they played, called Striking Vipers. The new version it's called a lot like
1: uh, Mortal Kombat or yeah. Tekken, kind of a game. And I mean, like, there's Mortal Kombat X. Like, it's pretty much a takeoff of that.
0: And, and this this latest version of the game, y- you can put on the side of your head, much like a you know a device we've seen in past episodes. This like sort of little dongle that you know attaches to your head, and then sync it up with the with the game all of a sudden you're in a virtual reality version of this street fighter you know like game people have been playing for years and you know obviously right. then you know, danny and carla favorite characters
1: that they yeah. play as uh, so uh, the, the friend carl he he likes to play as a character called Roxette who played by uh, pom Clemente, who was another mcu uh, star Wars. she's um, she's mantis from the guardians of the galaxy films who's hilarious yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other character Danny plays that anthony mackie plays is uh lance yeah who i'm not sure I recognize the actor but he kind of looks like just if you had to cast somebody to play a video game character what you would get yeah he looks like that guy from uh, Tekken, doesn't he is it um... he, he looks just like it i was trying to figure out if they like Digitally, like enhanced his yeah. body to 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 make him look more like a video game character with his muscles and everything. But uh, I, I'm not sure about that. So obviously, you know, they they they're fighting
0: in the game, and 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 then all of a sudden, they, if they fight it sort of ends up in a bit of a roll around, and they end up having sex, or so they end up kissing, uh, which causes Danny to be a little bit shocked. He he leaves the game, but then next time they go in on the promise that nothing like that's going to happen again, and they just had a little bit too much to drink. They go at it again.
1: It keeps getting back to them just sitting in their couch chairs with these little things on the side of their head, like eyes rolled up, and yeah, completely it's kind like of unsettling, comatose, like cutting yeah. back and forth between this like sort of romantic scene and these guys just like looking like zombies in the chairs.
0: But you know, again, I think that's Brooker being very clever because yes. when you know, when my sons are on the, on their iPads and and on their you know Nintendo Switch. And I'm talking to them. I'm like, boys, it's tea time now. Come and wash your hands, whatever, before tea. And then sometimes I'm looking at them, and I'm like, they didn't hear me. Or they, they heard me, but they're just somewhere else. And, you know, I'm just thinking, yeah, that's what we're getting to. We're getting to a point where they're so immersed, especially youngsters now who have grown up with this technology. We've seen the birth of it. We've, we can think back to a time where you didn't have smartphones, where, you know, you, you would literally have to call someone on a payphone. Today's generation growing up, These things have always been part of their lives, and I think the immersion for them would be probably far more easier to succumb to because. They don't know any different and like you know when you see danny and carl you know comatose on on their sofa i think yeah you know they, they're people already like that they're conscious but they're so lost in these games And as we move now into into vr something you know, vr is something i never thought would come back
1: so i remember like that 90s vr which was uh, not not really up to this there was a game boy sort of um uh, the virtual, they, they the virtual out, boy, yeah, yeah. or uh, like i know some malls had these like virtual reality setups you could Pay however much or arcade, you know, go and try it out. And it was always sort of clunky. Um, I mean, traditionally, technology it's enhanced our physicality. You know, yeah. spear, early technology, it it's adds distance or you know, wrench. It it does things like physically. We can't. Car can drive, move for great distances. It's all physical. Now, like so much of the technology, it's not extending your body. It's extending your mind. It's putting you mm. in connections with people around the world. It's a, a sort of different relationship. That's one thing that VR kind of gets into. So in the episode, it kind of goes back and forth between like, oh, you know, do these best friends like? Do they love each other? Or are mm. they just? Is it just something sexual? Is like, you know, is it just because of the video game? And they're trying to hash through that. Well, I guess. Uh, Anthony Mackie's wife is trying to have a a new baby with him so like there's all this stuff kind of going on and it it gets into the like uh, you know what is this relationship I have to figure out figure it all out kind of a thing.
0: Yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot you could unpack about this episode. There's a lot of different ways you can read into it. And, and when it went down the route of questioning Danny and Carl's sexuality, I thought, well, that, that's what this episode's going to be about. It's going to be sort of like, you know, the episode uh, San Junipero, which dealt with a gay female couple. And then you had, I thought, well, this episode's going to be the male equivalent. But then very quickly, Brooker sort of spins that on his head and it's not about them and any sort of undealt with sort of feelings that they've had for each other. It's it's more about Danny. He's getting to that age now. He's he's approaching middle age. Him and his wife are trying for their second child. And I think he's just beginning to question or maybe have something of a bit of a midlife, you know, a reaffirmation of where his life is going. And then when he gets this sort of new immersion into
1: this other reality where you can just forget... It's a bit like having an affair. It yeah, sort of revitalizes yeah. him. Like, at the very beginning, it's Anthony Mackie. I think it's before they're married, him and his girlfriend then... Uh, role-playing as if they're strangers meeting for the first time and that kind of gets them excited and then later on you see like similar situation except he's not role-playing it's just like the kind of tired point in their marriage where get the feeling that like all the excitement and enthusiasm is kind of drained I thought Where it was going to go eventually is saying like, okay, he's not actually attracted to his friend. It's the role playing that gets him excited. And what he was going to end up doing to sort of fix his relationship with his wife is he was going to get her to play the game. You know, they were going to role play that way. And I thought that's maybe what they were going to do with it.
0: I, I I agree I think it's more about you know the sort of addictive immersion into this game and then the fact that obviously they, they get in sexual rewards into
1: video game addiction uh, yeah. maybe porn addiction you know it sort of mixes in with everything that's going on like there's a certain point where the Danny character seems to deal with it better than his friend Carl does like you know they go kind of they, they decide to stop at a certain point, yeah. And then, like Carl gets invited over for dinner, and he's talking about like trying it with all these other people playing, and it's it's never quite the same. And- yeah, I think
0: the difference being there is the fact that because Carl isn't married, he hasn't got children, he hasn't got anything to lose, and and he's more free then to sort of give himself up to this addiction. Whereas Danny is thinking, this is going go- to go. to yeah. his wife, and yeah, exactly. That's right. And it's obviously it's having a real life knock on effect on him. Much like, you know, any sort of addiction would and, you know, any sort of addiction that you're trying to hide from, a, you know, from your loved ones, like, you know, drug addiction or, you know, sex addiction, which is kind of like, well, this is alluding to. But then this is also coupled with video game addiction. And, and you know, if VR is going to become more of a thing and if it's going to develop now as years come on, like in, in the same way that information technology and, and social media has developed, conceivably... We could come to a point where something like this, as much as you know, that full sort of physical experience is, is quite unlikely that we're going to get there anytime soon. Although there,
1: there's no way that would come free with the game. That would be like some expensive uh, DLC that you'd have to pay a lot yeah. extra for.
0: <laughs> yeah, we 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 complain about paying for DLC now, but if you can get like a patch to Street Fighter where you can just jump in the game, then obviously you know, who who's not going to want to do that? Although I'm I'm you know being a lifelong Street Fighter player, I am never going to look at the game the same way again.
1: <laughs> Sure. Well, I thought, like, also, there, there were points where I thought they were going to play on that, like, you know, when they go to meet in the alley, you know, he, he wants to kiss his friend to see if it's something that ex- can exist in real life, or if it's just in the game. And like, I thought, you know, they were going to have this sort of inversion where like, hey, they're having sex in the video game and in real life they're going to fight and you know it kind of turns into that a little bit and then the cops come and bust them but like i thought it was going to turn into like a real brawl
0: but, yeah
1: <laughs> again like I, I sort of think, you know it's all these sort of interesting elements and just the way it ties it together was was not totally satisfactory for me in this episode yeah because obviously at the end it ends up being like sort of a compromise where yeah like one day a month uh, he is You know, video game sex, and his wife goes and presumably has uh, sex with a stranger, and like that's how they compromise it. But that—that's where I think it had that sort of typical. It
0: it was a happy ending, certainly a happier than usual ending compared to some of the episodes of Black Mirror. But obviously, you had Danny. You know, he kind of—it's a bit of a win-win scenario for him because he still gets to feed this addiction, albeit on a very controlled, agreed term. But then you had that flip side where. Danny's wife Theo is actually going out, and she's having real-life sexual interactions potentially with, with with other men. Whereas the thing with Danny and Carl is controlled in a you know relatively safe environment. You know, he's, they're not going to be picking up any STDs when it's all virtual reality. <laughs> You've got this potential thing of Theo. You know, she's going out there. She's having sex. She could actually end up meeting someone that she genuinely thinks more of than Danny, and that potentially then could be more damaging to their relationship.
1: Like, from my own perspective, like, I I think the only bad relationship is one that's, like, not functional. So, like, I I, I know some people make that sort of thing work and have relationships that are open or somewhat open that they, you know, have a real working relationship built around. But uh, it, it just sort of seemed like a weird compromise for this particular episode to kind of, instead of coming to maybe one clear conclusion, it's this kind of middle of the road answer to end it all. I like
0: the sort of ambiguity of it all. You see what they put in place, but what the episode doesn't tell you is how things are going to go. And I, and that's what I like about, you know, some of the best episodes of Black Mirror just don't give you, you know, they, first certainly, yes. they, they don't sort of hold your hand through the episode. You know, going back to earlier on in Striking Vipers, you've got these little time jumps and none of them are, are screen stamped with, you know, five, six years later or whatever. Oh, I,
1: I thought they were like eight years later. No, and... I
0: oh, you know, I might be wrong, but I... There, there, there were like some big... Time jumps, like, six months later. They were, and, yeah were, yeah. yeah. Maybe okay. they were, and I just, you know, maybe they were so subtle and and,
1: and worked so seamlessly. I, I I mean, didn't also, I mean, in between, like, the titles, I think, like, you're right that there's also time jumps within that period where you're not sure, like, are months going by or... Yeah weeks or how long this is playing out for, necessarily. You sort of piece it together as you go along.
0: Yeah, but I just like the way the Black Mirror doesn't always spoon feed you, and it doesn't always <laughs> give you that sort of cathartic, sort of happy conclusion. And if anything, it leaves you thinking, this could be a thing one day. This, right. you know, you know, much of the best science fiction, and much like, you know, what what's, what Gene Roddenby did, did with Star Trek. A lot of the stuff that was in that show, and, and then, you know, a lot of the stuff in Kubrick's 2001, actually you know has come to fruition in in 2001 you've got these people walking around with these almost ipad sized data pads sure
1: we we still haven't caught up to 2001 that's still ahead of us well like also again referring back to twilight zone a lot of black mirror episodes end with a twist so part of the fun watching an episode for the first time is trying to guess where it might go what the twist might be or you know if there's going to be a twist at all sort of trying to figure out where this episode's going because you know sometimes there's these pretty unpredictable left turns which can be exciting if they're done well yeah
0: so moving on then to the second episode of the new season smithereens the one that you um obviously referred mm-hmm. back to there what's your take on this episode
1: uh, this is probably my favorite overall i think it's the most solid of the new season although like it probably doesn't have the most imaginative premise I, like, it's not even set in the future, this one. I think it's set present day. It starts off in 2018, and it's just using present day technology. And it's actually kind of interesting, just showing, you know, a more literal commentary on our relationship with technology in the present instead of trying to exaggerate it through science fiction. I think it's been done in the past on the show. There's a couple episodes which aren't really set in the future. You know, you could say maybe it's an alternate present because there's smithereens instead of a Facebook or Twitter kind of a social media website or app, but it's it's basically all just pre-existing technology and it uses that to kind of comment on you know, like the, the police being behind the curve in a lot of instances versus the social media company actually finding out information about people through their accounts and putting that together quicker than uh, you know even FBI can, or anybody like that, and there, there's a lot of social commentary in this episode that I found really interesting. I mean, like, even down to, um, there's a intern that the main character kidnaps, that, that a lot of the plot revolves around, and he doesn't realize they're an intern because they're dressed in a fancy suit, and like then you see in the company, it's like the higher ranks you go, as they're calling to try to get to the head of the company, you sort of see the chain of hierarchy within it, and it's like if people are dressed more and more casually. The higher up you go in the company until you get to uh the, the very head who's played by Topher Grace, who's just going around in like a bathrobe and shirtless with his hair in a mess, and it's almost like yeah, he's, he's definitely the, sort of a, a caricature of that stereotypical hipster social media right. technology developer. And he's living like out in some canyon in this glass
0: Yeah, he's he's gone on a he's gone on a, a ten-day sort of isolation retreat.
1: Right. It's like you know the the richest wealthiest like they're the ones who don't have to conform and wear a suit and they're the ones who are like they they actually have the ability to detach themselves from the social media stuff and it's like the the relationship with technology is maybe sort of inverted where you like, maybe you'd picture uh, somebody in a fancy suit who's controlling and has all these TV screens in front of them controlling everything but it, it's totally the opposite and it, it's kind of, you know, that that's a little bit how it is now so I found that just like an interesting social commentary and lo- lots of little details like that
0: in The episode itself is about uh, a guy played by Andrew Scott who, you know, when we first see him he's a taxi driver, you know, like, like an Uber driver Right. Eventually, then, as things progress, he uh, kidnaps someone who works for this this social media company, and then later on, as we find out, you know, once he's you know got this guy in the middle of a field, you know, he's got a gun with him. Uh, you know, the police have been alerted. They turn up with you know armed police and a negotiator, and then we find out that you know Chris's main aim is that he wants to get hold of this guy Billy Bauer, who's the head of this um, social media website called I think it's Hitcher, and then isn't one of the rival ones called Persona.
1: Called against Smithereens, but I think you're right. Yeah, Smithereens is the title of the episode. But... Or no, it is called Smithereens. Yeah, it is I called Smithereens. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I, okay. think, I think okay.
0: the, the 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 name of the app developer is Hitcher, and then Smithereens is the social media website. Right. And then you've got and then there's um, the other the social other one called media persona. website. That... Basically, as we find out, Andrew Scott, you know, one night, uh, I think it was three years ago, was driving his his wife home, and on the, you know the the journey, he, he got bored. As he said, he'd become addicted mm-hmm. to social media. And he's thinking, oh, you know, this is boring, pulls his phone out, sees that, you know, some some photo he uploaded got a like, or some comment he made on someone else's photo, got a like. And then all of a sudden he's involved in this, you know, road traffic collision. As a result, his wife dies
1: a few days later. And there's this outpouring of grief yeah. on social media and and he doesn't tell anybody that it's his fault because the other driver was drunk, so yeah. he didn't get any blame for it, and he's been carrying this secret around with him and it's when the episode starts you don't have any of this information that only comes near the end so you're wondering you know how these uh how his actions are connected to what happened or you know b- basically you're trying to figure out what's going on why is he doing this why is he taking this person hostage what's he got to say and really like you think it's going to be a big telling off of the billy bauer character the head of the company and instead it's more like a confession like yeah. he's got a confess to God you know and that's the only God that you have is the social media CEO you know it's this sort of unburdening that he has to do actually.
0: Yeah and I think it's also a just like a stark comment on on one of the biggest dangers of 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 smartphones and you know Mm -hmm. this addictive sort of nature of social media you know you've got drink driving and drug driving people that get behind the wheel of a car when they've got alcohol in their bodies, when they've taken drugs, are putting their lives at risk, but not only that, the lives of others. But then I think it's, it's equally dangerous when you, bear in mind, if, if, if you get, get a few drinks on board and you get behind the wheel of a car, you're in, you know, your impairment and your reactions are all going to be effective. If you're holding a phone down in your lap and you're looking down and actually looking at the road, then that's just as dangerous. As much as the law is sort of tightened on this sort of thing, certainly in Britain, I think that the law is sort of scrambling to catch up. And I think it's going to be not, you know, yes. it's, it's before long, we're going to be finding that heftier sentences are going to be handed out for instances where people are seem to texting be like... And driving. Yeah, texting and, and driving, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas now I think, it, you know, if you're texting and driving, you're going to get points on your license and a fine. I like think before long, you, you potentially could be finding yourself being arrested for it be- because of the fact that it is so dangerous and, and so many, you know, or an increasing number of road traffic collisions are invariably caused by this sort of thing. So, you know, going back to, you know, why I felt Nosedive was one of the most frightening episodes. You know, initially I thought it was quite amusing with this lighthearted tone. And by the end, I was thinking, Jesus, we are nearly there. With this episode, Smithereens, we're there. This is now. This is a contemporary episode. This is based on technology that we have all got with us now. From that point of view, thinking this could be me driving my family somewhere and you know my phone goes off in the, you know, center console. I look down at it, all of a sudden I've lost concentration and then the worst has happened. So from that point of view, I found it probably more terrifying than any of the other concepts in, in any of the previous Black Mirror episodes. <laughs> What do you think of the conclusion of this episode? Because we talked you know, about the ambiguity and the fact that it doesn't hold your hand. I think something new that's been introduced this season is the fact that you have the end of the episode, the credits roll. Then you have these little sort of codas, you know, sort yes. of peppered amongst the end credits. And, and in this one, we've got obviously this hostage situation. The young guy in the back of the car is trying to stop uh, Andrew from killing himself it's not conclusive as to what happens for
1: your gunshot what is your take on what happened at the end just with the struggling i sort of wondered if maybe both were shot mm-hmm. uh you know seemed like a possibility and you also sort of wonder you know a little bit what what if anything it could change actually like the the way that the billy bauer character is talking it's like he's not even control of the company anymore it, you know like you're comparing to twitter it's kind of grown into this thing that's bigger than him he can't even reel it in and you know it's uh when he's talking about how you know it's tested to make it as addictive as possible and as controlling of our lives as possible you sort of get the feeling at the very end that you know even though this big standoff happened and somebody uh, was killed or maybe two people were even killed by the end of it it's probably not going to actually change anything no and
0: and that's that that was for me probably one of my favorite parts of the episode where mm-hmm. this Billy Bauer character who is very much a sort of amalgam of you know Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and, and you know various other entrepreneurs of, of companies which have now gone supernova in, the, in their you know size and popularity it, it was very satisfying to instead of having him play it as like some distant detached sort of guy who now doesn't give a shit about this behemoth he's created he's actually being honest and open saying this is beyond my control
1: I really like that about his his performance. Like, you know, at one point they try to feed him talking points for a hostage negotiation. And mm-hmm. you start seeing how badly that goes. And, yeah. you know, the Andrew Scott character just tells him, you know, like, you know, just speak. Speak to me like a human being. Yeah. Speak to like a human being. And and he does, actually. And they, they sort of connect in that way. And I almost didn't expect him to. I thought, like, that, you know, they were going to make it sort of a caricature villain. And that, that that's where the cleverness of Charlie Brooker's writing comes in
0: you know much like in the in the last episode in Striking Vipers where I thought all right this is going to be an exploration of sexuality it was but more so than that it was also an exploration of addiction of someone who is just unsatisfied with their sort of regular joe life it was about a lot of different things whereas this episode you know you think it's going to go down one route and it's going to fall foul of you know being a little bit predictable and certainly in yeah. terms of this Billy Bauer character I loved it then that it wasn't. And probably from Billy's point of view, this interaction that he has with Andrew Scott's character is probably the most genuine and honest interaction that this Billy Bauer character has had in a long time. He's actually having an honest conversation with someone about you know this this huge... You know social media empire that he's created probably he's probably telling them something that he's <laughs> that he's not told or to, you know, admitted to anyone else because he sees all of a sudden some innocent
1: young man's life is on the line because of something he created well and the ways that it can connect personally and like there are so many great moments in the episode like uh, when they start listening in on the cell phone without uh Chris realizing that uh he's even connected, you know they can hear him, and that that technology exists now you they can listen in to our phones even if even if we're not calling anyone. You know this very intimate kind of moment in the back of the car turns into this like huge stage where everyone's listening everyone's listening in on it, and something that Chris says to his hostage. Uh, like oh don't worry it's not a real gun that's basically just to calm him down uh, it's actually not true and you know because of that the cops almost kill him on the spot right then and you see how things go badly but uh, you know again like it's all based on things that exist and could happen
0: so then you move on to the third and final episode i think the one which is possibly proved the most polarizing of the three is rachel oh. <laughs> jack and ashley Two, which stars Miley
1: Cyrus as a uh, pop starlet Ashley O. What did you think of this episode? I actually thought this episode started really strong. And uh, I, I can guess why it gets a little bit divisive towards the second half or... Last third, maybe. I actually, like, I didn't have a problem with Miley Cyrus's performance. I know some people were critical of it uh, online. I saw a few criticisms of her performance, but I thought, like, she was just fine in the episode. And I don't know if it's because she's kind of, like, you know, she's playing a character who's also got a persona. And I I think maybe that's been a little bit misconstrued. I I think it's just, out of all the episodes this season, this one ends up kind of taking the least bold and kind of most predictable route. And the themes in the other two are very adult- and like, I, I don't mind that it's dealing with younger characters, but in the end, it sort of feels like it, it has a message that feels kind of watered down or, you know, it, it doesn't feel as bold as the other two, I guess you could say.
0: I, I agree. And you know, I like what it's saying about celebrity. And again, you know, this harks back to the, you know, the second episode of the first season, 15 Million Merits, where it, it's all about celebrity because mm-hmm. that one is about a talent show, amongst other things and I think this one you know, apart from being quite autobiographical in terms of how Ashley O has got certain parallels to Miley Cyrus about when she was like this sort of Disney created yes. pop
1: starlet but then we know that deep down she wanted to sort of you know, she tried to break that image and people were shocked. Like, I, maybe it's taken for granted now, but like when Miley Cyrus was taking on this more sexual image and people were like actually angry or offended. I mean, like, I, you know, I don't care. Like, I think that's probably a good thing if she's going to assert her image however she likes but you know people were mad at her like they Mm. were uh, sort of upset by that and you know it kind of feeds into this episode in just like how carefully curated that image of her is and you know even down to um, I mean this has more fantastical kind of science fiction stuff in it like they're pulling music out of her unconscious brain while she's in a coma and like it's sort of angry music and they're editing it to make it pop and (laughs) there's Mm. You know, this sort of idea that they're just constantly, you know, they, they try to use drugs to keep her in a sedentary state and just keep trying to control her and control her image, which makes it a little bit funny that, like, by the end, she, she leaves behind generic pop music to do generic punk music. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if it's better at all, but at least it's it's sort of the character kind of doing what she wants to do instead of this uh, manufactured image. but. <laughs> yeah, I I I agree with you there, Matt. There's a few of
0: the little technological leaps that it makes, like the fact that yeah, you know, they're monitoring her subconscious and they're managing to pull music out of it. It's completely ridiculous, right? You know, on paper that or, doesn't or that work put, like, at all. A,
1: a full scan of her brain inside a plastic toy, yeah, like, yeah, stuff like that. I, I sort of you know, compared to the um, the previous episode that we discussed, Smithereens, like this one, it feels like the technology's way more out there, and then the premise is also kind of less grounded so like it's it's just moving in a whole other direction so and yeah you know obviously
0: going back to smithereens one thing i meant to say is i think smithereens is the only episode and i may be wrong but it's the only episode that starts with an actual date and timestamp. it's actually set in 2018
1: right whereas
0: you know every other episode is is sort of you know you're left to sort of piece things together and guess what the time frame is and where the episode is set you're quite right Matt. in
1: this episode's got some quite big leaps in logic, but... There, there's some weird, like, I, I thought it was funny, like, there's all this incredible technology in the episode, but, you know, like, two girls showing up in obvious uh, costumes to sneak into the mansion. The security guy's, like, will come on in It yeah. doesn't bother to, like, call the, the manager or do anything to stop that, like... There's a fun tone and a feel into this whole episode. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but, like, compared to the other ones, it's, like... You know, going from like Twilight Zone esque show to like Agent Cody Banks or something, it's it's just such a strong kind of tonal shift. And even though there's there's swearing and there's stuff where they try to give it some edge, it still feels juvenile. I I think by the end of it, it I agree. And do you know what?
0: There was a time when I would I would always gravitate towards the deep, the darker, bleak sort of you know, <laughs> like like the end of the Seven. Sure. I, I would always think, you know, if I ever made a film, it would have that sort of Seven. Empire Strikes Back type ending where the bad guy wins because it's something that we're not used to. But, you know, now in the in the times of, you know, Game of Thrones and, and things like that, we're used to having the rug pulled from under us. And so many episodes of Black Mirror have just got this sort of ending, you know, in particular, the episode White Christmas. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's so much... Like like when that guy is made to live over you know the same day where he's constantly listening to um, I wish it could be Christmas by Slade I think which is God damn me one of the worst songs of all time a song I absolutely <laughs> fucking hate my idea of hell would be something like that where every minute of our life he's living a thousand years that that's, that is just terrifying you know these things would just leave me completely cold and thinking holy cow that you know that is that is as affecting as any horror film. But then this episode, when it finishes with a happy ending, I'm like, oh, do you know what, Black Mirror? I would like more of these, just to balance out a little bit more. Not too many more. You know, I I do like the sort of bleak tone of a lot of them. I I liked it. It it was a nice shift in tone. Um, I think I had a a lot of fun with the episode. I thought Miley Cyrus was great. And it seemed like they'd put in a lot of effort. Like, the... You know, you've got these like little pop ditties playing, and,
1: and these music videos, and I like the fact that they created the this album persona, artwork, the posters, like they actually, yeah. you could tell that a lot went into just developing that Ashley O character that she plays. I kept thinking during it, like Miley Cyrus could probably be in something um, serious feature film. Like I, I thought she could actually pull that off i know she's been in some films like what, what's the seth rogan anthony mackie christmas movie i think she plays herself in that but like something away from that kind of comic light-hearted disney sort of persona or either playing on that like i i kept thinking during this episode you know there's parts where she looks very uh rich and sad <laughs> where yeah. she would be in a um, olivier assayas movie you know if she was in something like a uh, personal shopper or you tweeted that out yeah. like this
0: week didn't you yeah yeah she you yeah. know she i think she could And I think with a little bit more guidance now, and I think the right roles and the right script, yeah, there's a potential future for her in acting. Yeah, you know, I I know, you know, if if you look at the moment, it's scoring very low or fairly low for a Black Mirror episode, it's scoring 6.2 on IMDb. I've got to say, um, you know, just summarising things up with this later season, I know obviously, Martin, you've got your favourite episodes. I actually thoroughly enjoyed all three. Although I think probably Striking Vipers is going to be maybe the one that is maybe the most popular But then again Look at IMDB now Smithereens is actually scoring
1: Higher than You know The other two Okay I, I think like Smithereens It's the most and Maybe polished Like And both Striking Vipers And The uh, Miley Cyrus one Rachel Jack And Ashley two I think probably Could have used used Maybe some more Time in the writing, like yeah. they just feel like they need another pass to kind of work out exactly if they want to make some deeper point or go a little bit further. Like, I, you know, you mentioned the sort of change in tone being refreshing, and I, I thought so too, actually. Like that later tone didn't bother me. It was more just I, I wish it had taken, a, you know, a less predictable route for the ending, or you know, made something a little bit more, you know, made some deeper social commentary other than like, oh, you know, she she doesn't just. Have to be that image that she's been portrayed as, you know, like it could have gone a little bit further. It's hard to say what exactly it or striking vipers needed, but I think they probably could have both been improved upon if, if the, you know, they had a little bit more time or a little bit more time spent on the script. I think.
0: So, so what do you think, Martin, of the move back to the three episode series length? Now, mm-hmm. uh, given the fact, I think episodes. I'll say seasons three and four were each six episodes.
1: I mean, I could have kept going. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I, I wouldn't have minded more. Like it sort of made it easy to prepare for this episode just to watch three episodes. But Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I think like the, the overall quality doesn't seem that different from, you know, the, the previous season. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's one of these things
0: that this is one of the things I find most refreshing about Black Mirror. Black Mirror has been going since 2011. It's been going pretty much as long as Game of Thrones. Now, Again, I don't want to dive too, you know, too much into Game of Thrones at the moment because I think you know we may well be covering it on an upcoming episode. Oh, that's going to be intense. That <laughs> yeah, we've 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 discussed whether or not we should do it, uh, whether or not it's going to be too late, and whether or not people are just going to be sick of hearing about talk about Game of Thrones. But you know, Game of Thrones is pretty much it, it was a a kind of event TV the likes of which yes. you know we we've not really seen might the, never
1: ever get again. No, we might not. I mean, we the not. last kind of big everyone tune in for the final episode sort of event.
0: And you know this year two two big things which have been part of uh, of certainly of my life in terms of entertainment for the past decade have come to a, a conclusion in a way. You've got the, the 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 Marvel Cinematic Universe and Game of Thrones. Now for me one of them came to a conclusion that was just completely satisfying and it was better than anything I could have hoped for. And then you had another one which I thought was just going to be a guaranteed dead cert that <laughs> it just fucking nosedived <laughs> so, so you know sorry to you know, spoil any future episode that we have and i have maintained complete social media silence on this until now um, I, I, think I, I was we'll yeah i, I was we'll two weeks late watching the final episode the episode aired when i was on holidays um, i wasn't able to watch it you know god bless bill scurry he actually gave me a means to watch it and because i was just so busy i didn't get around to it so when I came home, suffering from jet lag, you know, one of the few nights I was back, my wife and I sat down and watched it. And it just brought to a conclusion, a season for me, which has been probably as disappointing as the fifth season, which I thought from a writing point of view was the weaker season where things diverted from George RR Martin's books, and you know, the sort of writers seemed to be in a bit of a sort of no man's land as to where they were going with things. Given the fact that season six and seven picked up, and then, you know, the, the potential for season eight. Bear in mind, they pared things down from the usual 10-episode format down to six. I was thinking, right, they're literally going to take all of the fat off of this. It's going to be lean, effective storytelling, and they're going to put a full stop on things now instead of letting things drag on, and we have another Walking Dead situation where a show just runs itself into the ground. You know, I thought you know, that everything's on the cards here for this epic bit of storytelling to come to a satisfying conclusion for it to go down in history as one of the greatest TV shows ever. And I've got to say it, I just found it bitterly disappointing. I know that not everyone feels that way and people are happy to accept the way the show has gone, but I just think it could have, I'm not saying it was a complete disaster. It just, it was so disappointing for this great show to end like this. I think one thing I like about Black Mirror is you may well get a sort of diminishing returns and maybe if they ramp up production and we get more series more frequently with more episodes, the writing and the quality of the show might get diluted over time. Yes. But the, the one thing he's got going for it is the narrative is different every episode. I think that's one of the great things about the Twilight Zone is each episode, Rod Serling was able to focus on a topic and not worry about pandering to certain characters and, and their character development. Much like Gene Roddenberry would tackle similar episodes in Star Trek, but he still had to do it within the confines of this you know, group of seven or eight key characters that he had. Serling didn't have to do that. He could have new characters each episode, which were tailor-made to dealing with the the topics he was talking about, or the topics he wanted to address, and that's exactly the same situation Charlie Brooker's got here. Because, you know, I can't think of any recent anthology shows which have been as successful from a both you know a commercial point of view and a critical sort of standpoint as black mirror has been have you seen any of the new twilight zone tv show i haven't okay <laughs> I, I haven't uh, been able to watch it yet i think over here it's on amazon uh, and i'm not an amazon amazon prime subscriber i may be wrong but no i haven't got around to watching it yet is, is it as good as the original is it anywhere near as good as the I, original
1: it, 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 i i wouldn't say it's nearly as good as the original um i think there's probably more episodes i would say are good than other people have been saying and that's probably me being generous (laughs) i don't know like something about it just doesn't work there's better episodes there's ones that kind of come together but like i remember watching it really excited you know like a revival of twilight zone and jordan peele he's probably less involved in the show than initially they made it sound like he would be he's more just the the host really but you know i thought like okay like you know there is a sort of twilight zone quality to get out and uh, you know he's doing um, all the sketches for you know doing all the sketches for key and peel i thought like okay that makes a lot of sense him tackling an anthology show But then uh, it just felt really sort of drawn out and unimaginative premises and not just up to the standards uh, that I was hoping for. And I think now there's been like multiple revivals of Twilight Zone. Mm. There's the 80s version. There's like the early 2000s version with Forrest Whitaker (laughs) and now this one and for whatever reason it just seems like they can't use that as a vehicle because really what made the Twilight Zone special it was Rod Serling and that group of writers you know like when I go back and watch Outer Limits it's really like the writers who make that show great you know I, I think an anthology show really more than a showrunner like it's really dependent on its writers and mm-hmm. having sort of unique voices coming in to tell like a real story. Like, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these Black Mirror episodes are fables. You know, what and a fable that's going to have a point, is going to tell a story. And I think that's the, what the best episodes do well it, it's a fable about technology our relationship with our technology and our future it, it obviously draws inspiration from all these classic shows like you mentioned i mean you know maybe the most obvious example is the uh, previous season uh, i think it's called uh, uss callister oh, just just yeah. to take off of star trek it, and that totally pays homage to classic uh, original gene roddenberry star trek uh, you know so it's very aware of that past but it, you know it just finds stories to tell which i think it's makes it interesting. Although the, that USS Callister episode probably like I, I think Star Trek kind of parodied themselves in that way first you know with these uh, Barkley episodes on uh, mm-hmm. Star Trek The Next Generation where it's sort of saying like okay you know we get that some fans aren't watching this show for its uh, you know vision of the future and its morality details like we get that some fans just see it as like a weird power fantasy <laughs> yeah. you know I think Star Trek already kind of figured that out so like you know USS Callister it's a little bit behind the fact but it, it felt maybe worthwhile just because like there's uh you know the new star trek movies with chris pine and there's you know, star trek discovery so you know it was maybe worth rehashing it, it's basically the same premise of this like virtual reality version where you get to be the captain and i think that's what a lot of fans sort of fantasize but yeah black mirror is always sort of good for if not outright satire then
0: yeah i think it's the sort of new modern day benchmark for anthology tv series and as, i think so as much yeah. as it doesn't cover the supernatural it, it dips its toes into horror is certainly obviously heavily science fiction based and then and also a lot of contemporary stuff and and i just think just to bring things to a conclusion though i think season five is it maintains the quality i I thoroughly enjoyed all three episodes i you know i don't know if any of the episodes maybe would be in my top five episodes of black mirror but apart from one or two episodes i'm not particularly keen on i don't think there is a bad episode of black mirror i cannot wait till the next one And, and talking about bandersnatch we haven't actually mentioned that Right. <laughs> I, I've I've only gone through yep. Bandersnatch once. I, I've had my one experience in you know with Bandersnatch. I you know, I i thought yeah I'll have to go through it again. Um, you know just to see what you know and and make the opposite choices to what I initially made. But you know I'm not sure how particularly well Bandersnatch worked for me. But it's, it's made, you yeah. know fair play to to Brooker and Co for having the balls to try something new, because you know God knows it comes to the point. Certainly in film these days, we're seeing much of the same ideas regurgitated and you know it's nice to see technology and entertainment merge in a way like that that we've not seen before
1: like I'll throw my weight behind smithereens like i think it might take a little bit while to might take a little while to settle but that might actually make it into my top 5 if i had to break it down and rank them i, I think that one's actually really solid yeah from seasons 1 to season 5 just just what what are your standout episodes there 's a couple where I, I might have to remind myself exactly what happens well let me, uh, let me help you martin no, there 's
0: twenty three episodes. How long can it take season one you've okay. got you 've got the national anthem, the one about the um... Pig intercourse. Uh, you've got fifteen million merits, and then you've got the entire history of you—the one with, uh, I think—is it Toby Cable and the uh, sort of brain implant that allows you to rewind your memories. The third one's probably the weakest out of that first season. For me, that is that is probably the best of, of that season, and that, that's the best one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought it was. It was fantastic. I thought Jodie Whittaker was awesome. You know, I, I'd not seen her as Doctor Who. I'm not a Doctor Who fan, but it was around about the time um, okay. I watched it. She was doing her run on Doctor Who. And I thought, right, right. absolutely yeah. brilliant. So, yeah, I think from season one, I think that's, that one and, you know, the national anthem are the two strongest ones for me. Uh, and then you've got season two which again is only three episodes you've got be right back which is the one with uh donald gleason and oh um, that one's
1: really good yeah where, where it's like the body robot that is a replica of him and around. of course
0: obviously hayley atwell agent carter from the marvel films yeah you know that's a really yeah. good um uh, you know that one based, that's a really good one yeah based yeah. on anything just more more than anything the performances and then you've got White Bear, which is the one about the woman who relives the same day over and over again as a result of a crime that she committed. You know, that one's that pre- was okay. pretty yeah. good and pretty messed up. And then you've got, which for me is the weakest of of, of the um, the earlier Black Mirror episodes, is the Waldo moment. The one with the guy that he creates this sort of animated right, that, you know, character. Yeah, that, that, that you know,
1: Catches on. and He's, he's pretty <laughs> much created what Donald Trump is on Twitter. I mean that that one it almost like the parody. I I think they could have gone further with it. Yeah, like you know, make it really ridiculous when when people would vote for a cartoon. You know, you could go go very far with that. Or maybe that's just more the time we're living in now. But yeah, I I remember that one. And then you've got the the
0: the 2014 Christmas special, which came in. Yeah, White Christmas, which was which had John
1: Hamm, Rafe Spall, Una Chaplin um, from Game of Thrones, and Natalie Tanner. I remember the surprise of having John Hamm on it. Like at that time, I wasn't expecting to see him on Black Mirror. It still felt like more of a cult show. Like now it's definitely blown up more. I think more people are aware of it. But for a little while, maybe it's just in Canada. Like it felt a little bit harder to get a hold of and not that common for people to come across. But now that it's on Netflix, everyone seems to have seen it.
0: Yeah. You know, I thought that White Christmas was one of the strongest episodes. Yeah. you um, given the fact that within yourself, it's sort of like a – a kind of multiple stories in, in one episode that end with the guy just in that Mm -hmm. thousands of years long hell, which he can't get out of was just terrifying. But one of the things that frightens me the most is the concept of infinity. You know, I just thought it was so cruel the way that woman said to the, to the guy that was in charge of his, well, punishment really. Oh yeah. Just, um, you know, just leave it, which you know would be a couple of hours for, for us, but thousands and thousands and thousands of years for him. And I just thought, Jesus, that that, that is just—it just sends shivers down my spine. So yeah, for me, that's one of the strongest episodes. And then moving on to season three, you've got Nosedive, the one that we've mentioned with Bryce Dallas Howard, which I think is right. def- that's definitely it my top five. Up. I think it's fantastic. You've got Playtest, uh, the one with Wyatt Russell, Kurt Russell's son, and Hannah John Kamen, someone else from the MCU who plays Ghost. I, th- I think that's a really strong episode. And then, you you know, obviously you've got the, this guy who is helping this video game de- developer by agreeing to have this implant put on that is going to bring out his worst fears. Who the hell would ever agree to that?
1: <laughs> oh, I, I remember this episode. Yeah, the, the, I remember being a little bit disappointed by that one, but uh, maybe just the ending.
0: Got the next one then is Shut Up and Dance, the one where the... Uh, and again, this is based pretty much on real life where you've got you know these internet scammers who are sending emails to people saying, you know, we've hacked your computer and we've got um, footage of you masturbating to pornography, we need you to that send us... That one's a really good episode.
1: Yeah. That, that's uh, a really dark, good episode. Yeah, that, That's also one of the other episodes that I don't know if it has a date at the beginning but it's just set in the present. Like, yeah. There's no science fiction premise no. to it. It, it. It's really, really well done, that one. like, It could have been a feature film even.
0: The next episode, the one which, along with USS Callister, won you know, several Emmys for Black Mirror is San Junipero, the one with um, Gugu Mbatha-Raw and Mackenzie Davis. Um, right. And I've got to say it, just having to skim back through the scores I gave all these episodes on IMDb, this is the one that I think, first off, I thought, you know what, I thought it was unanimously probably one of the most popular ones, but I've actually spoke to a few people if they say, nah, it didn't actually work for me. I actually think this is probably Black Mirror's high point. I, I thought it was just, you know, the setting, you know,
1: the 80s setting, the fact that it's sort of... Right. Okay. Yeah. It's coming back to me. It's definitely better than the other Google, Matha, Raw, Netflix endeavor, the uh, Cloverfield Paradox. Oh, I I stayed away from (laughs) it. Uh, Yeah. I I feel like sometimes she shows up in these science fiction things, like uh, she was in Jupiter Ascending. Mm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, what are you doing here? Like the the other film I sort of think of her in often is uh, Belle, which that's a very good film, but... Like, I know some of her roles she's had sense. I'm like, what, what, what are you doing in this? Why are you here?
0: I, I've read a lot about this episode and people's views on it. And what, one of my, you know, the way I would summarize this episode, why it's so great is Black Mirror deals with a lot of stuff about technology. And the more you embrace technology and science, you could argue that you're moving away from ideas of religion and God and the afterlife. Now, if man, in his earlier form, created God, uh, as, a, as a crutch uh, and, and, and something to sort of give him faith and stability in, in in his or her life. As we develop then and maybe move into a more sort of agnostic or atheistic sort of belief structure, this episode, what, do, what does mankind eventually do at the end? Mankind creates its own form of afterlife. The fact mm-hmm. that these people's consciousnesses, after their bodies have given up on them, are uploaded into this cloud, you're effectively in a man-made form of heaven. And I think there's just a lovely sort of little.
1: That's the good sort of forever.
0: <laughs> it is, as opposed to the listening to I wish it could be Christmas for John a thousand Ham years repeat. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> and then you, the next episode is Man Against Fire, the one with the sort of indoctrinated soldiers who are seeing these uh, humans as like infected okay. zombies. Not a particularly great episode, but again, you know, that, that's in terms of comparing against some of the better episodes. And then you've got Hated in the Nation, which um, I think is like a the end of season three. It was a pretty much feature length. I think it was well over uh, an hour and 20. That was with Kelly MacDonald. It was the one about the sort of like little bees, uh, robot bees who get out, out of I didn't control.
1: like that one. I, I think that's one of the episodes I pretty much don't like outright
0: uh then you've got opening season four uss callister which we obviously we've spoken about i think is a fantastic episode lots of
1: fun and yeah lots of fun
0: pretty fucked up and it's got um, a nice tongue-in-cheek sort of feel to it then you've got archangel the one about the mum with the device where she sort of watches her daughter
1: you know that that one sort of archangel was an episode that just didn't do as much with its premise as i i thought it could and
0: And then the the next two, uh, again, two of my favourites, you've got Crocodile, the one with Andrea Risborough, where her and her partner, they run someone over, you know, a cyclist, and then 15 years later, they end up sort of getting back into this sort of cycle of murder. Again, it harks back to technology we've already seen in previous episodes. I think that's a really nice, dark, sort of messed up little episode. And then you've got Hang the DJ, which is the one about the the, the dating app and the couple who meet up. and Right, still, yeah. You know, and ultimately, we find out that they <laughs> are just artificial constructs of people using a dating app. I thought it was a great twist. I thought it was a fantastic episode. Great performances. Uh, it's with Georgina Campbell and Joe Cole. I just thought, again, that's another standout Black Mirror episode. Uh, one of my favourites is Metalhead, just because of its simplicity. I think there's only three main characters. It's filmed in black and white. You're thrown into this sort of post-apocalyptic future where the robots have taken over and as we all know that's probably how we're going to end up yeah. <laughs> you, you, you look on Twitter and oh, Facebook. Oh the
1: asteroid's going to get us way before the robots do. No <laughs> I don't know.
0: Martin, just, just just google robotics and, and robotic um, sort of leaps in technology and you, you will see.
1: <laughs> the, the ones that scare me are the ones with like legs that kind of wobble in yeah. a really uncanny way but they're walking <laughs> yeah, they can,
0: we've developed yeah. dog-like robots like this that can <laughs> jump and you know it, it's we're nearly there for fuck's sake humanity what are you doing
1: of, uh, of a robot like that and like somebody was just kicking it and the robot would like stumble and then kind of find its bearings <laughs> it was really strange to see
0: how long before <laughs> that robot starts fighting back
1: oh well oh, human- uh, humanity sure
0: what we'll are what, what are we doing Uh, Then you've got Black Museum, which uh, starred Douglas Hodge and Letitia Wright, which is Letitia Wright, again, from Black Panther and the Avengers films. And then you move on to Bandersnatch, which obviously, as we've discussed, did Bandersnatch work for you, Martin? Not as such,
1: but I haven't gone back and tried it again. Like, it's sort of a, I I think for people who don't know, I'm I'm sure people do know, but it's kind of a video game (laughs) version of a Black Mirror episode. So it might have just been my, my go through that I wasn't as into. It's pretty much a, a little uh, sort of glossary of of Black Mirror
0: in its entirety so far. This latest season, um, did it live up to your expectations?
1: I think so. I, I think like I had criticisms, of course, going through, but uh, overall, like it, I think it's up to the quality that Netflix has been putting out the past couple of years, and uh, it's uh, worthwhile stuff. Yeah.
0: So yeah, usually when we're reviewing things on Film Eighty Nine, both on the site and on the podcast, we give a score out of ten. But obviously, given the fact that we've got three episodes here, I'm not going to complicate things and ask you to score every episode. I'm just going to say thumbs up, thumbs down, or in the middle?
1: I think it's two thumbs up and a thumb in the middle.
0: Oh, great. Well, there you go. Uh, three, three thumbs up from me, so rounding it up, that's a full 89 verdict of yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> Moving on to uh, this episode's favorite three, or favorite five, or in this case, as it's gonna be just me and Martin, favorite 10 segment, where we're going to be discussing our all-time favorite video games. Now, obviously we picked this as there are, obviously links with Charlie Brooker, he used to write about video games, and video games crop up, Quite frequently throughout Black Mirror, as people who know you, you've written a piece for Film 89 about Dark Souls, the you know mm-hmm. the, the video game that you're very fond of. You've spoken at length on Wrong Real about Dark Souls, and you've done an episode about the Resident Evil films and and your love of them, which are obviously based on a very successful video game series. Just take us through Martin Martin Kessler as a gamer, and you know how long you've been
1: into gaming, and and you know what your preferences are. Probably not. Uh prolific gamer but some games I've gotten very into Uh, you know I can appreciate a good video game it's a form of storytelling it's a form of art and I used to think I I was kind of bad at video games actually you know I felt like I had slow reflexes or (laughs) I would overthink stuff but at this point I I beat all the Dark Souls games I beat Demon Souls I beat Shadows Die Twice I I don't think I can say I'm bad at video games (laughs) anymore (laughs) so yeah like I I think a good video game it's, it's something I can get into into and appreciate and you know there's people who are way way into it and play everything but I'm a casual gamer you know the rest of my family play video games also my, my father plays like the Call of Duty you know World War II style games my mother likes Legend of Zelda my brother <gasps> plays whatever so I, you know everyone in my family you know plays a game at one time or another that's
0: <laughs> are you more of a contemporary gamer
1: or, or or a retro gamer or a bit of both I think I'm more of a contemporary gamer. Like, there's definitely retro games I've sunk hours and hours into, or even, like, sort of in between, like, Super Mario 3 or a lot of the N64 games I've played kind of ad nauseum. (laughs) But I, I think just what some of the newer systems allow in terms of scope and in terms of more intricate stories, like, I can really get into and i I sort of appreciate how like a lot of retro games can tell a story or do something interesting on a really small palette you know like just in terms of what i like I, i think a lot of my favorite video games are just you know relatively recent releases maybe in the past 10 years or around that
0: i've been into games pretty much as far back as i can remember um you know i think that you know i did have a home computer for a a long time i had a commodore amiga which was purely you know a gaming computer but then you know and around about that time friends of mine had the old nes and then into the 16-bit generation uh and that's where i sort of hit my what i call or consider the golden era of video gaming you know the sega genesis or the sega mega drive and you know the, the super nintendo and, and it 's that period for me and, and just just to sum up what my my personal idea of gaming Nirvana would be you know if I could sort of implant one of those black mirror devices on the side of my head and, and go into some sort of you know artificial you know reliving of my life i would it would be me living throughout the nineties in Japan. Um, going to places like Akihabara and just basically picking up all the, all the you know Japanese games, role playing games, you know the the Mario games, you know just living that era again, an, an era that is just I've got nothing but fond memories of of just that whole sixteen bit generation. I go through phases where you know I've probably spent maybe eight to ten years just completely or not completely but almost removed from an entire generation of gaming. I you know I never had a console in the PS2 generation. Friend of my or a few friends of mine had PlayStation 2s. and uh, you know, I did fortunately play a lot of games like Resident Evil 4, um, you know, games which are really sort of key games from that generation, which I didn't miss out on. But whatever I was doing in my, you know, probably more interested in, you know, my personal life and stuff like that. At the time, I sort of dipped in and out of gaming. So from, probably from the the Sega Dreamcast sort of era, around about 99 to 2001 to 2010, when I actually bought a PlayStation 3. In between that period, my gaming was pretty much nil. Then I bought a PlayStation 3 and I was sort of like headlong back into gaming. And then it was one of the games which is going to be in my list. I played, it completely blew me away. I probably thought this is as good as gaming's ever gonna get. That probably coincided with the birth of my second child, after which point, you know, my gaming has fallen back down hard to Hard to
1: find the time Yeah,
0: it is. And you yeah. know, and as much as I would happily, you know, buy a PlayStation four and lose another couple of thousand hours of my life <laughs> to Street Fighter five. Right. Which is a game that, you know, I think, yeah, if I bought that, nothing's going to get done around the house. Um, you know, my wife's going to be I know pissed exactly at me. What you, mean. you know, I, I just, unfortunately, yeah, it's, it's a personal thing that I've just not got yeah. time for, you know, for gaming anymore. And if I'm moving on to our top 10 favorite games there, Martin, if you want to start with your number 10,
1: uh, Dragon Ball Fighter Z. And th- this is more my girlfriend's game, but I've been mm. <laughs> getting my ass kicked playing it with her. Uh, so. I don't, like that, that kind of put it in my head for when we were talking about the episode that like, oh, like he should get his wife to play the video game because like it, it's fun if you can play the video game with your significant other. And uh, there's other fighting games like I played, uh, you know, some of the Mortal Kombat games and some of the Street Fighters, but I'm really just in awe of how Dragon Ball Z feels like the anime and the way that they move. It's so crisp and fast paced and you have these really wild combos. It's uh, visually fantastic and it, it just gets you feeling pumped like after playing dragon ball Fighter z going back and trying mortal Kombat x everyone feels like they've got like weights on their legs it feels so slow compared to it so that's my number 10 well i've i've never played
0: it um hayden Spurl would be you know he'd be clapping his hands about now because <laughs> he's a big gamer and he's a massive dragon ball fan uh, you know I'm a, I'm a huge fan of fighting games uh, as you're going to find out in my list i've always lent more towards street fighter but my number 10 is mass effect 2 I was late to the Mass Effect series and in fact I think Mass Effect I I didn't play the original Mass Effect I think it it first came out on the PC and Xbox and then it was later released on the PlayStation 3 by which point they died out all the bugs and the version
1: that was released on the PS3 had all of the DLC. That's how I played it I got the three pack where it's the three games and like part of playing them all together you sort of realize that it's designed so that You know, the character you create in one and decisions you make carry over into the second game and then carry over into the third game where they become completely inconsequential <laughs> I, i've not played mass effect 3 but i've heard that it is bitly disappointing it's a
0: strange one because from a game mechanics point of view i don't actually think the mass effect 2 is that great a game
1: but it's just so in depth like, it is it's it's, really it's, yeah, it, yes. it's
0: it's from 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 a role-playing sort of character point of view and the, and the way you can develop your character and it's got these really rewarding sort of character interactions and I think I think that is the thing that makes Mass Effect Two so good, and the fact that you get this big band of characters together over tens of hours. You know, I can't even remember you know what my final game clock was on on, on my my one and only playthrough of Mass Effect Two, but I will never play through it again. Simply because that first playthrough for me, the end result was so perfect. Uh, you know, you've even got a choice of which characters you hook up with. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got Miranda.
1: There, there's potentially a lot of sex in the game depending on how you play it. So the Black Mirror is not not far off from no. that either.
0: And you know, I, I always remember, like, sort of the emotional turmoil of me going for Miranda, and then the other character, uh, the other female <laughs> character, who then later admitted a sort of attraction to me was Jack, the sort of bald-headed girl. And then the fact that I was like, there's something really sort of twisted and hot about this girl that Miranda hasn't got. As much as I'm I'm going to go for Miranda, I really don't want to let this girl down. I actually remember thinking I'm getting angst and anxiety here (laughs) about the fact that I've, broken this girl's heart and then in the final mission because of the way our relationship had gone I teared off other people Yeah, if your relationship with certain characters uh, dips then there's every chance they're not going to make it through that final mission so you know I had to get all of these characters through alive and by some miracle I actually finished with all the characters alive which a few friends of mine who played it they, they haven't been able to do that the way it finished it was a happy ending and it was so satisfying from a, a, a you know a storytelling point of view I thought it was fantastic so, so, yeah, that's that's my number 10. What's your number
1: nine? Uh, Silent Hill 2. And I didn't play this when it originally came out. I just played the uh, HD remaster. Really, like, just actually a horror video game that's scary <laughs> and how much it gets by on atmosphere and, you know, sort of working these psychological themes into the visuals. Like, I, I found it just such a creative, singular experience. I've tried out some of the other Silent Hill games. I, haven't, I don't think I've actually finished Silent Hill 3, And it just sort of felt like an imitation of what Silent Hill 2 did so well. And I I, I think it's, uh, of course, like a survival horror classic at this
0: point. I'm a huge fan of the Resident Evil games, although I've never been a big fan of the first one. My entry point to Resident Mm -hmm. Evil was Resident Evil 2, then I played 3, then Code Veronica, then 4. um, I thought 5 was bitterly disappointing, and I think that's it. That's been it for me. I've not played any of the newer Resident Evil games. But Resident Evil 2 and Code Veronica. And I mean, now there's a
1: new remake of yeah. Resident Evil 2, yeah. which I, I desperately want to play. Also, the um, official like new Resident Evil game, uh, Biohazard, which came out, I guess, last year. That I, I have really wanted to play because it actually looks like it brings back some of yeah. the horror.
0: I think because I was so loyal to that franchise, I never bothered with the Silent Hill games. Okay. And I always found that certainly with the earlier games, they seem to use fog as A way of creating atmosphere, but at the same time, the cynic in me thought they're just covering up for the fact that the graphics are not that good.
1: I I think that's definitely the case. Like they are, but I I think it's a creative way to sort of extend the boundaries compared to like I played so many games where you kind of realize how confined it is or how sort of empty the world is very quickly. And you know, Silent Hill, considering when it was made, I, I think it just did such an effective job at making it feel like oh this is a real town and what's going to be around the next quarter and you know you hear a sound what's going to be over there it it did that so well and from what I've seen of Silent Hill 2
0: it is pretty messed up isn't it you've got those nurses with the twisted deformed faces (laughs) swinging axes at you and stuff yeah it's um, to be honest with you I probably avoided it because it was probably a little bit too scary for me and I am a bit of a wimp when it comes to uh, things like that my number 9 it's The Elder Scrolls 5 Skyrim massive it it's huge and i'm ashamed to say it again being a ps3 player obviously that game came out on the pc first uh then it came out on the xbox it was i think is it bethesda the same people that did fallout
1: that makes sense it's similar to like you know fallout and fallout new vegas those games
0: and they're known for releasing games riddled with bugs so fortunately (laughs) for me by the time i played the ps3 version all the bugs were ironed out The version I had had much of the DLC and I just got completely engrossed in the game. It took over weeks maybe months of my life. I was thoroughly enjoying it. I was developing my character in quite a broad manner that he was both a weapons wielder and a magic user and I was nearly at the point where I was reaching the sort of concluding chapters of the game. Or, or, you know, the sort of dozens and or maybe hundreds of side quests and then loads of main quests, which then eventually it's lead to a... It's a little overwhelming. A, like, yeah, it when is. I,
1: when I tried to play it, I felt like I wasn't sure what was a priority mission yeah. and what was just sort of a side mission. And then I thought I was doing a little courier thing, and came back and the whole city was on fire. Yeah. And I sort of got a little bit discouraged just from kind of how big and directionless I felt it was. But I, I get completely why people would love that. You know, it's so open and huge, yeah. Maybe
0: too open. The fact that, like you say, sometimes you just don't know where you're going. You're forgetting what the main quest is. You're getting too embroiled in these side quests. But I've got to say it, from an atmosphere point of view, I've I've downloaded the entire score for that game. And I think Hans Zimmer actually did a lot of the music for it. it. It's got some of the most just achingly beautiful music I've ever heard in a game and it is just so epic and you know the first time I ever confronted a dragon and you know maybe the first few times it was just just overwhelming you know it, it was quite a steep learning curve initially but then it mm-hmm. got to the point where like all the best role playing games you just get a sense of character development of progression it's been a long time since I played it it probably was a little bit too much grinding involved it, it, it was a great experience it's unfortunate it's not one that I ever finished so that's why it's fairly low down on my list but from a you know point of view of those first couple of dozens of hours maybe 30 40 maybe even
1: 50 or I mean, 60 it almost hours it's like a game that you would want to finish mm, like you yeah. invest so much in your character and you collect everything and it, it's like oh you know when you finish it's all over like it's almost yeah. like losing everything you built up so i, I get that yeah
0: Unfortunately, what happened around about the same time i got into two other games which are going to feature higher on this list which were i've got to say it even better mm-hmm. than skyrim so they were my cause for putting Skyrim aside and not going back to it. So that's my number nine, Martin. What's your number eight? Uh, Batman Arkham City. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. It, it's my number eight.
1: Okay. We, Holy we can talk shit. About it together. <laughs> wow. there
0: you go. I'll let you go first. Wow. Uh,
1: well, I mean, similar to what we were just talking about, it does have that open feel, but it's it's not like endlessly open and it kind of gives you enough direction that you sort of figure out what to do and you can kind of space the big objectives out with like you know the little riddler puzzle missions or you know some of the story smaller uh, story plots and like there were so many moments in it that completely blew me away like um, the whole mad hatter segment when you've got the bunny-faced Batman or yeah. you know the way the story concludes like the, the actual plot i think is fantastic you know for you know such a big game to kind of feel like okay there's a real sort of story driving it it's not just some oblique thing you know that, that, that kind of plot twist with the joker and clayface and everything how it all came together totally blew me away and you know it's it's so much fun to play as batman and feel like okay this i'm actually batman a video game. that's a lot of fun to me and yeah, yeah i think it's a fantastic fantastic game uh, i haven't played arkham asylum yet i think i have it sitting around it's just waiting to be played when i have a Rainy
0: day. Yeah, and again, much like with Mass Effect, 2, I've only played the second game. Obviously, we've had three—is it three Arkham games now? I've only played Arkham City. I never played right. Arkham Asylum. A friend of oh, mine.
1: The boss fights are good. Oh yeah. god, it's yeah. So much fun. yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think I can say right, hand on heart. Now this is the single best use of a of a licensed character or or or, or a license used in any video game. All the other games on my list are you know original IP, whereas. Batman is is taking an existing license and turning it into as good a video game based on that character or, or that universe as you well, could getting
1: have. Kevin Conroy, who voiced yeah. him in the animated series, like it, yeah. it just felt perfect. Like Mark Hamill you know, voicing the Joker. Mark Hamill is the Joker, of course. You know, it, so it's. It's all stylized and redone, so it doesn't look like the cartoon. But it it's got its own kind of feel, and it just feels like I mean, those are kind of the definitive voices for a lot of people, and you know, I I kind of feel that way. So, hmm. you know, the game felt like okay, this is right. This is the Batman video game I've always kind of wanted, so or could only ever want. So I, I was really really satisfied. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and what I liked about the game is the fact that it it just it mixes so many different styles. And when I first saw a friend of mine playing it before I played it myself. It looked very much to me like the fighting style was based on button mashing. But then when I actually got to grips with it, no, there is a strategy to using those four buttons. You know, you've got block and punch and, and you know, I I can't even remember what the the combination buttons are. But it comes to the point where you're just instinctively involved in this melee fighting with loads of characters surrounding you and you're just kicking ass. And sure. it is just so satisfying. And starting
1: off, it... it, it All the gadgets it gives yeah. you and fun and creative. Oh. Like, you know, kicking somebody off while you're sledding yeah. and a grappling hook and things like that. Or, you know, it, it's just exactly what you'd want. Yeah.
0: Looking at my list, there's two games on this list that I've never finished. The first one being Skyrim. Later on, we're going to get to another game, which, and I'm embarrassed okay. to say it, I never finished. Much like Skyrim, another game came and pushed me away from that. And This next one, I've got no excuse for. But with Arkham City... By the time I finished that game, I was completely satisfied. I'd had an incredible gaming experience. The difficulty level was perfectly pitched. It was one of the most atmospheric games I'd ever played. It was just all round a completely satisfying package. The game didn't feel too long. Everything about it was just spot on. So that's why it had to make my list. So, Martin, what's your number seven?
1: Uh, Securo Shadows Die Twice brand new game Uh, I just completed it maybe about a month ago it took me I think about two months to work my way through the whole game even though it's not super long it's just uh, very challenging you get to play as a ninja it's sort of similar actually to Batman Arkham City in that you know, it doesn't feel like you have a lot of fighting options at first, but as you kind of get used to it and acquire more skills, you can kind of elaborate on the, the sort of basic fighting setup. Plus, there's a lot of stealth. You know, it's also like the Batman in that you get to climb up high and target somebody and jump down and kill them. It's a FromSoft game. It's absolutely gorgeous. Like, it's it's partly on my list because I think it's visually one of the most beautiful games I've ever played. You know, there's times where you feel like you're fighting in a a Kurosawa film, you know, all Mm -hmm. these amazing armor designs and creatures and samurai and castles. It's uh, it's a really, really beautiful world, getting chased by giant snakes and all sorts of things. It's hard. Like, I, I think the sort of line on it from a lot of people is that it was too hard, but... I think it's the kind of thing that if you stick to and once you kind of get on its wavelength it's, it's completely doable it you know it, it's just some real sword fighting trickery but it it you know just a stunning game it's full of moments where like i, I think I, my jaw was hanging open because i was just blown away by what i was seeing or what was coming out of the the, the woodworks to fight me <laughs> at various points
0: well i think you know if, if a game you've only recently played is, is featuring number seven on your all-time favorite games list then it's mm-hmm. got to be good My my number seven, you know, this list as it stands has probably been, you know, I've had this list probably stowed away maybe on my iPad for a few months. Uh, I think it maybe came up in like a Twitter poll where someone was asking for your favourite video games. Can't think of whatever reason I had this list, but anyone who knows me and anyone who saw my recent reaction to the new James Mangold film Ford vs Ferrari will know I'm a huge fan of motor racing. It goes without saying that a racing game had to feature on my list. Now initially it was Gran Turismo 6 on the PlayStation 3 which you know for the longest time I thought was the greatest driving game. Purely from an enjoyment point of view I think it's been eclipsed by the Forza series. You know I haven't played the most recent iteration on the PlayStation 3 Gran Turismo Sport which again feels like polyphony doing what they've done before releasing an incomplete game but I was thinking about it. Actually, Gran Turismo 6 was after I'd got into the Gran Turismo games. The game that hooked me and pulled me into that way back in 2010 was Gran Turismo 5. That is a game that I have sunk so many hours into. It it was released by Polyphony incomplete. Then over the course of a couple of months, they actually finished the game and released just drip-fed extra content, tweaked the game on an almost daily basis it wasn't a good way to release a game. And as much as all of that downloadable content was free, it all should have been initially on that first disc pressing. You shouldn't have had to have waited as long for it. But by the time they finished, that game was up to a really highly polished, all encompassing game package where you could do all manner of different driving styles. There was rally driving, there was NASCAR. It was just absolutely phenomenal. And by the time a decent version of that game was released probably in the March of the following year, you know, I was completely obsessed with it. I wouldn't like to say how many hours I sank into it, but it was a huge time sink. And given the fact it's not got a narrative, it was just one of those games you could just go on, and there'd be daily challenges released online, which you could have done. Uh, there was the I don't know if you've ever played a Grand Turismo game, but there's these licensed challenges, which are amongst the hardest things I've ever played in a game. I been, but the learning curve on them is incredibly steep, but it's also fair. And there was this one challenge which I did, and it was and again, this is God, I probably haven't played this game for like about eight years, but it was a challenge where you had to do a lap of the Roma circuit. Um, And it would be a hot lap. You would start with a car already moving. It'd be like 18, 19 cars in front of you. And you had to get into first position by the end of maybe one or two laps. And and you were given a stock car that you couldn't alter. It was a Ferrari 512BB, I think from about the mid-70s. And this one challenge, I could not do it. I couldn't get anywhere near close to finishing in pole position. And I kept trying and trying and trying over probably far longer than, than I should have before giving up. I, I went from being completely hopeless of this one challenge to by the time I finally nailed it, my online time was number one in the world. This was, <laughs> hands down, the single greatest <laughs> gaming achievement I've ever had. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I, I, I was snapshotting a ticket, sending pictures to friends, and they were like, no, you've doctored that. You haven't done it. And I was like, well, I've got the replay saved, so have a look at this. And it, it was just so satisfying. And it just showed that this incredibly difficult game wasn't unfairly difficult and with enough practice you could actually master it it isn't the greatest driving game ever but at the time at that snapshot in time about you know eight or nine years ago it definitely was and you know i know there's fans of the gran turismo series i think that some of the older games were more groundbreaking you know i think as, as time goes on as technology advances when you talk about racing games the more realistic they become i think the better and you know this is just one of my personal greatest gaming experiences so that is my number seven martin what's your number six
1: I have a racing game, too, <laughs> for my number six. I had sort of a similar thought when I was putting my list together that, oh, I should sneak a racing game in. Yeah, like, I, I don't like driving, like, on my own. So it's just there aren't many racing games I actually enjoy. Like, I find them kind of stressful, you know, like Grand Theft Auto and games like that, too. I also find stressful. Mm-hmm. But I really, really love Star Wars Racer, the Episode one pod racing game oh, for N64. Yeah. I played it like endlessly to the point where playing with friends and stuff at a certain point, like you have the maps completely memorized. You're sort of reacting things, <laughs> reacting to turns and things before you even see it. It's like you get the Jedi reflexes they talk about. Unlocking every racer, beating every level, getting, you know, top times for everything. Like eventually, you know, you've completely kind of mastered it. it it's sort of a similar feeling, but that was my racing game. And there's so many great Star Wars video games out there, like, you know, Shadows of the Empire, or the, like the old Republic games. But for, I think just based on hours alone, the Star Wars Racer kind of wins out for me. Some of it, like, I don't know, I, I think the TIE Fighter game is so cool. The really <laughs> precise, technical, like TIE Fighter combat flight simulator type game. But uh, Star Wars Racer, it, it's just a blast. And like, you know, you get so used to using the N64 controllers playing with it that, you know, you get totally in sync with it. it it's one of those games. So th- that's number six on my list.
0: And again, obviously i said I missed out pretty much on the, 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 the PS2 generation, but I did actually benefit from being able to play a lot of PS2 games. When it comes to the N64, unfortunately that's a games console that I know is beloved, but for whatever reason, at that time in my life I was... I, I was either... I think maybe... I think I was probably going down the PlayStation route and avoided... I, I'd actually moved away from Nintendo consoles, haven't favoured them for a long time. So, yeah, unfortunately, there's not going to be any N64 games on my list. But, yeah, I, you know, I know a lot of people who love that game. and you know I've got of,
1: one more N64 game on uh, mine, but, uh,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was your number six, yeah? Yes, yeah. My number six is the other game on this list that I didn't finish. This is the game that stopped me playing Skyrim. I completely <laughs> fell head over heels in love with it. And again, I played it after the initial release. By the time I picked this game up, the Game of the Year edition had had been released, which had all the DLC on the one. Sometimes
1: that's best. I wait for everything to be packaged together, yeah.
0: And if Skyrim blew me away, then this game took it to another level. It's one of the most cinematic games I've ever played. But aside from that, the actual gameplay mechanics, the story, the graphics, everything is just absolutely perfect. It's Red Dead Redemption. Oh, wow. Yeah, I I got as far as Mexico and then another game on this list came out and unfortunately I never went back to Red Dead Redemption and I'm really disappointed in myself
1: for not doing so because obviously the character of John Marston. Is
0: it John Marston?
1: I don't I haven't played it again partly because it it's, looks enormous like I wish I had the time to play a game like that but it, it looks absolutely gorgeous, yeah.
0: It it is incredible and Having now missed out on the latest generation of consoles and seen how absolutely jaw-dropping Red Dead Redemption 2 is and spoken to friends who've just sunk absolutely weeks into the game.
1: And there's like the, I think for the first one, right, there's like zombie yeah, DLC yeah. and there's like all sorts of yeah. wild stuff in there, yeah. It, it's
0: it's incredible. And the thing about Red Dead Redemption I love the most is, is if you can think of something in the game, the game will invariably, probably allow you to do it because the programmers have already thought it up. I think there's a strong case for Rockstar Games being the premier game developer of this age, certainly of the last few generations of consoles. Red Dead Redemption and Red Dead Redemption 2 and certain other games they've made that we may come to later, I just think are amongst some of the greatest games of all time. If people said that Red Dead Redemption is the greatest game of all time and certainly the second one, I I don't think I could disagree with them because it's just... Unbelievable. It, it combines two things I absolutely love, westerns and video games. And the video game side of things, coupled with a brilliant story, is just perfectly well done. It's just unfortunate for me that I never actually took
1: that story to its conclusion. So what's your
0: number five?
1: Uh, this is my other N64 game. It's Perfect Dark, Ooh. which... It's kind of the, like, unofficial sequel to GoldenEye. And basically, it just takes everything that was great about GoldenEye and makes it better, but without the Bond license. Yeah. Uh, But so many imaginative weapons like the laptop gun or, you know, you end up figuring out what your favorites are and weird single-player story with aliens and just one of the most enjoyable multiplayer experiences I've ever had playing a video game. Like, even the way that... uh, first-person shooters have gone like i still have a hard time kind of recapturing the creativity and imagination and fun of playing people on perfect dark and you know coming up with weird parameters for your matchups and just just the sheer sheer variety of things you could do and levels like it, it it was one of the most enjoyable times i ever had playing video games playing against people on n64 with the screen split into four chunks which now i'm I'm sure looks like totally out of date for most people
0: yeah and and that's how i judge a lot of retro games if i go back and play them now and they still they still hold up then Mm -hmm. for me that that's a classic game you know i know the games like zelda the ocarina of time right and super mario 64 i'd say probably less so with mario 64 because i think now it's been superseded by better mario games Okay. You certainly, I know a lot of people that will say say hand on heart that certain N sixty four games like Goldeneye, mm-hmm. uh, even though Goldeneye they're, they're you know,
1: classics, yeah, they,
0: they are classics. But I can't, like, I can't see how people can prefer <laughs> Goldeneye to modern day shooters, which are far more advanced, both you know from a gameplay point of view and the gra- graphic point of view. Because you, you look at like certain games which are going to feature on my list now are knocking on thirty years old and and have had later games released in the series which from a technical point of view are far better but i think if the gameplay mechanics are there and they work and they still work today and if my kids who are like age five and eight can play that game from 30 years ago and still enjoy it then that game is doing something right (laughs) so i think that i think that the difference for me is when a retro game works and, and is timeless and where one gets superseded by later versions Perfect. Arc. If if it's a sequel to GoldenEye, was it made by the same company by Rare?
1: I think so. Yeah, because uh, Rare I, yeah.
0: obviously, you know, they they had a relationship with Nintendo back uh, earlier in the '90s when they did the Donkey Kong Country games uh, <laughs> and and Killer Instinct and the like, where they had this almost like sort of at the time big jump up in in the, you know the graphical power of their games, and they were like sort of pushing consoles like the Super Nintendo to their limit, and and then obviously with GoldenEye created what is you know one of the you know highest regarded games of all time but yeah never played perfect dark um i did play a few n64 games unfortunately that wasn't one of them so my number five you know th- there's a lot of sort of middle sagas uh or middle saga entries to mine like mass effect 2 and batman arkham city and then elder scrolls 5 gran turismo 5 this is another one that's sort of like in between i think there's so far there's four or maybe five games if you count one of the spin-offs but it's Uncharted 2 Among Thieves. Okay. Now, I had to pick one of the Uncharted games. You've got a single-player campaign, and then you've got online multiplayer. The single-player campaign for Uncharted 2 is just absolutely staggering. That game came out in, I think, 2009. By the time I played it in 2010, it had already been out for a year. But I had, at that point, having pretty much skipped an entire generation of consoles and was fresh into the PS3 and sort of taking a bit of a eight or nine-year hiatus from gaming... When I played Naughty Dogs Uncharted 2, my jaw was literally constantly on the floor. And even to this day, it still holds up as one of the most incredibly well made, beautiful looking games I've ever seen. The third game came out then on the PS3 and it didn't have as engaging a single player campaign. The online component of the third game was even better than the second. I sank hours into both of them. And again, it had an incredibly steep learning curve. When me and my friends dived into Uncharted 2 online, we were complete noobs. We were getting slaughtered. But I kept persevering and persevering and persevering until it got to the point where, amongst my own little circle of friends, albeit not in the, you know, the wider online community where there were people with godlike abilities, I became by far the most proficient one. And my little group of five or six close friends who i actually knew in real life and it wasn't just online friends who would log on every night and have a quick multiplayer blast on uncharted it got to the point where four or five of them would have to play against me on my own because i was getting (laughs) that good and again it was one of these moments much like that gran turismo moment where i was like i have now mastered this game i've put so much time into it and the game is so well made and the learning curve is so well laid out that you can actually become proficient in this game with just enough practice and yeah it you know nolan north the, the voice actor who plays uh, nathan drake and you every other character in it people have said why don't they you know make an uncharted film
1: because they keep talking about trying to make a film of it and it it won't work because uncharted
0: <laughs> uncharted basically steals wholesale from indiana jones but just puts in a modern day satin
1: i mean tomb raider's also kind of done that and you know that, that's sort of what you get in the films is like um, split between indiana jones and james bond and but i yeah. think
0: what what the uncharted games do is they take fantastic gameplay mechanics incredible graphics an incredible cinematic sort of feel to them with these jaw-dropping set pieces that you're actually part of. You're not just watching you know, a full motion video sort of side thing that you're not playing any part in. You're actually controlling the character throughout these incredible set pieces. And then on top of that, you've got just amazing voice acting, amazing character acting. It's superbly well written. There is no reason to make these into a film. Because you make them into a film and you're taking out that, in- that important interactive component. And they're instantly going to fail. And it's just going to be seen as a as a cheap rip-off of, of Tomb Raider and or Indiana Jones. So keep it as a game. Yeah. It it won't work. But yeah, that's my number five, Uncharted 2. Martin, what's your number four?
1: Uh, Resident Evil 4. At oh, the four spot, yes. Which uh, we've already talked a little bit about these, so I won't go in as depth. But mm. I only played it for the first time... I guess two years ago. No way. So I, I was a late comer to it. I actually, like I had seen all the Resident Evil films, but I hadn't played a video game before for a long time, or played like five minutes of, of one and got stuck on a wall. But Resident Evil four is so top to bottom entertaining and mm. everything from like, you know, the, the actual horror of it to the slightly comic tone that it has. It, it's so yeah. well balanced tonally. It functions Really well, the gameplay mechanics even today. Like I, I played, um, I think HD version of it, like sort of slightly updated, but yeah. like you know, it doesn't feel clunky the way some games might uh, after a couple of years in. Yeah, completely entertaining and like I said I, I still have some catching up to do with the Resident Evil games but as of right now that's my favourite. I think like 5, I think that was for PS3 uh, 5 it, it, like mechanically there's more going on but yeah. like it, it, at the same time it feels actually like bogged down like yeah. especially with the character following you around and
0: 5 Five was the one set in Africa with Chris
1: Radfield. Yeah the South Africa yeah, I, I think it's not.
0: Yeah. Get, from a gameplay mechanics point of view it's probably a little bit more polished but in every other I, aspect, I, don't, I
1: think like four, like it's sort of simpler, but at the same time, yeah. it works better. Like it, it's just such a smooth play, and four,
0: four yeah. is just more intuitive, and it's like as if the game is more ergonomic. You, yes, yeah. Whereas I don't know, they made slight additional sort of, sort of slight additions and changes to five that just didn't work as well. I think
1: that yeah, five it, it's uh, it's more awkward to, to try to control it and. Sometimes going back and forth between aiming and... like For whatever reason, I just didn't find it as, as easy to play. Yeah. Like, 4, I got into very quickly. From a
0: nostalgia point of view, my heart will always lie with Resident Evil 2. It was the one set in Raccoon City. It broke out of the mansion yes. of the first one. It had a more epic feel to it. Resident Evil 3 then, you know, the events took place at the same time as Resident Evil 2. But I think you played... Uh, what's the name of the character? Jill Valentine? Valentine, yeah. It was basically more of the same of Resident Evil 2, just didn't have as good a story, but still mm-hmm. a good game. Resident Evil Code Veronica, which is kind of like because it was a Dreamcast exclusive for a long time, they actually think, I think they tried to push it away from the actual numbered Resident Evil series, but it actually features Chris and Claire Redfield as a direct follow-on to Resident Evil 2. So it should have been uh, one of the numbered Resident Evil games. That was a great game for the time. But Force almost
1: like a reboot. It, it, yeah. New story, new... Yeah, like set the set in Plagas. Spain.
0: Yeah.
1: The, yeah. the Last Plagas. The, the it has of, almost like hammer horror kind yeah. of feel to it with these guys in robes. Like, it, it's really fun.
0: They're not zombies. They're, they're people no. who have been infected by a parasite, which moves away from the whole thing of Umbrella Corporation and their biological experiments, which, you know, create zombies. So from that point of view, it shouldn't have worked. But the game was just so good in every respect. It could easily find a spot on my list. It's not on there. I will say hands down Resident Evil 4 is one of the greatest games I've ever played and I played it through probably about five or six times
1: that was my number four yeah
0: oh Resident Evil 4 your number four Uh, (laughs) my number four has also got a four in the title I first bought this game day I bought my PS3 on the 30th of April 2010 I bought my PS3 in order to play this game as i said i've been a massive fan of the street fighter series um, i think a year or two before street fighter 4 had come out on arcade and was later converted to console i didn't play street fighter 4 but by the time not knowing full well what they would do like capcom always do they'd upgrade the game much like they did with the original street fighter 2 you had champion edition street fighter 2 mm-hmm. turbo you had super street fighter 2 super street fighter 2 turbo i thought right i'm not going to get the initial version i'm going to wait a couple of months lo and behold I think less than a year after they released Street Fighter 4, they released Super Street Fighter 4. new of new characters, loads of gameplay tweaks, loads of extra gubbins. I bought that game, and then a few years later, they released an upgraded version of that, available both on disc and as DLC of Ultra Street Fighter 4, which added, I think, the final roster of characters in Ultra Street Fighter 4 is 44 characters. And as much as some of them are kind of a little bit similar to others, I think it's the one fighting game where... The majority of the characters are markedly different from each other, and I think it's probably the most balanced fighting game I've ever played. I haven't played Street Fighter Five, as I said, obviously because it's on the PS4. I've not upgraded to this generation of I've consoles yet. I've heard some
1: people actually prefer four or five, yeah. even with some of the new additions. Like some people say, it moves a little bit slower, or you know, they have some issues with it where they they actually would rather go back and play four for competitions and things yeah. like that.
0: And you know, I think as much as you know, the, the whole Street Fighter Pro. Tournament thing has just exploded, and you can now win hundreds of thousands of dollars if you finish in first place. It's crazy. I wouldn't say I'm anywhere near top tier. I am certainly lower mid tier. They are world class players um, who are far better than me. But the one reason this game is on this list is because probably about five or six years ago, when I checked my game clock, I was, I was up to 500 hours.
1: <laughs> That's
0: impressive. And that was, I've probably played it quite a bit since then. I am too scared to actually look at the in-game clock because (laughs) at at last time I calculated it, I had given up well over... uh, Well, it it was weeks upon weeks of my life to that (laughs) game. I still play it occasionally from time to time and I just don't want to look because if I have to admit how much time I've sunk into that one game, I could think, Jesus, I could have got a second job.
1: could have written a novel. Exactly, yeah. I could have (laughs) done
0: any number of things instead of throwing my time into... A fighting game from which I've got no tangible reward at the end. I have to pick a fighting game, and for me, it's got to be Ultra Street Fighter 4 on the PS3. So, oh, we're into top three territory. Ooh. Martin, what's your number
1: three? Uh, my number three is Bioshock, which I, I think like, it's one of the most acclaimed games to come out in recent years. It's this underwater city, which is kind of like a satire of Ayn Rand's. Ayn Rand's philosophy in a weird way and it's it's got such a neat aesthetic to it and built such a cool world in some ways like the the sequels add things that i kind of prefer like just number two being able to play as the big daddy character through it like it's you know you feel powerful for that game or uh number three i i really like a lot for actually just changing up the world and you have this like floating city and it's sort of also like a satire of like american exceptionalism and things like that but three kind of loses the plot a bit and maybe number two feels a bit too repetitive but the first one it's you know still absolutely fun to play and has you know great great twist in it that sort of plays on your idea of hey i'm controlling this character i'm making the decisions when really the game's kind of guiding you and how you interpret uh, information in the games you know that sort of thing i really like about it just overall fantastic experience playing it
0: yeah, it's one of those things where, unlike with films, you can finally succumb to enough recommendations and, and watch a film you may not have seen in your <laughs> beloved classic. With video games, it's not the same. If you're gonna pick a game up and you're gonna run with it, you could be chucking you know, tens of hours I, into we'll a game. Say,
1: like Bioshock's a pretty breezy play compared to some some of these. Like you know, it's a single story that you can kind of if you really want to, you can speed through it fairly quickly. But part of the fun is just you know, reading the journals, listening to the audio clips and kind of finding out more about that world right my top three
0: you could easily interchange any of them and my number three could quite easily tomorrow be my number two or my number one and looking sure. at my list so far, every single game in it has been made in the last 10 years. And it's only now in my top three that I actually go back to, to to older games. And as I said earlier, if an old game still plays today and if my kids can play it and get as much enjoyment from it as I did back when it was originally released in the case of this game back in 1990, clearly it's a great game. And that game is Super Mario Bros. 4 Super Mario World to give it its full yeah. Japanese title. <laughs> I had to put a Mario game here somewhere. Um, I've, again not being the owner of any of the recent Nintendo consoles. I've only briefly played games like Super Mario Galaxy. I only played briefly Super Mario 64 on the N64. Super Mario World will always be one of my favorite games. I I think it is one of those few games like I can say hand on heart is flawless. The gameplay mechanics to this day are just, they mind boggle me how simple yet effective they are. It's a 2D yes. scrolling platform game. You know, a lot of people will say that Super Mario Brothers 3 is their favorite Mario game. I, I love I Super Mario 3.
1: partly because it was maybe just the one that was most available. And but like the first one was kind of clunky a little bit compared yeah. to it's like, you know, that the third one adds so much to it. But
0: it does. And, yeah. and you know, the the jump between the earlier Mario games and Mario 3 is significant. Yeah. You think the Super Super Mario Brothers came out in 1985. Then in 86, you had Super Mario Bros. 2, the US version, which is actually a repackaging of a game called Doki Doki Panic, which was, <laughs> which was a game that was not made by uh, Shigeru Miyamoto. In Japan, they had a different version of Mario 2 that was actually basically... Mario 2 yeah, that, yeah, the, that nobody's played yeah, here. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was actually released here as part of the Super Mario All-Stars package called Super Mario okay. Brothers: The Lost Levels. It's actually just like a much harder version of Super Mario Bros. When they moved then on into in 1988 in Japan, I think it was later released in 1990 in America and Europe. Super Mario Brothers Three was a huge jump up. You, it was still a two D platformer, but you know there, there was so much more to the game. Different then,
1: upgrades, yeah. That, that was also one of the first games I remember. Like. Wow, there's Easter eggs and warp whistles and like weird stuff like that, and rumors. Yeah. Oh, good, you could skip this whole area by doing this and that sort of thing. Um,
0: yeah, and again, you know, you yeah. think back, there was no internet. How did people discover that first warp whistle where you've got to jump on this white block in the middle of the screen, hold down for five seconds, and your character falls into the background and you get to the warp whistle? And the only reason I know that is because I've recently st- replayed the game on my son's Nintendo Switch. Uh, and your know, Mario 3 is still a great game, it still holds up. The Super Mario World just takes things to a whole nother level. The graphics and sound, are still they've still got a charm to them. They still look great. Those new sort of suit mechanics that we saw in Mario 3, like you had the Tanooki suit and the frog suit yes. and things like that, they they sort of pared down in a way in Mario World. You've got the fire flower, the mushroom, and the cape, and Yoshi, of course, which is the, the main new addition. But yeah. that little addition of Yoshi, which I think initially was something they were looking to work into the into super mario 3 but they couldn't it was too much of a technical problem given the limitations of the nes super mario world i i will never forget the first time i went into um i think it was electronic boutique which was the video game store we had near me at the time and i saw super mario world playing on a super nintendo i'd seen it in video game magazines i'd seen footage of it but the first time i was actually able to play that game it completely blew me away i I totally fell in love with the game I wouldn't even like to say how many times I have finished that game, but it is hands down. If you ask me what the greatest game ever made is, it's going to be one of these games in my top three, or I might just say all three. Certainly, Super Mario World is up there for me as one of the greatest
1: games ever made.
0: So, where are we now, Martin? You're on number two.
1: Number two. I should say two. Like there are some games that I desperately want to play that have been sitting on my shelf, just you know, waiting for a moment. Like Alien Isolations, is one I really wanted to play, and. Bloodborne's another one that like very easily could be on my list if it lives up to expectation. But mm-hmm. uh, as is, my number two is Metal Gear Solid Three, and Ooh. really like I love the whole franchise. Like uh, the first Metal Gear Solid was one of those seminal vi- video games for me, where it was like one of the first video games I remember actually kind of feeling cinematic. Which maybe you know sounds ridiculous when people look at the graphics now, but just the storytelling, the voice acting, you know, it felt like it was on a whole another level compared to other games i love the character designs i love the gameplay the gadgets and the sort of weird tricks to get past certain things <laughs> you know like you know one of the f- most famous ones is fighting the psychomantis you have to move the controller over to the other port uh, <laughs> in the first game. Yeah, Metal Gear Solid yeah, on yeah. the PlayStation, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean for the first one. Like, you know, and uh, so I really fell in love with the series in the first game and I think just number three is the kind of best overall in terms of storytelling, in terms of voice acting. I think it's the one that most engaged me emotionally. You know, usually we talk about games like kind of in terms of technical qualities or, you know, game mechanics and things like that but in Metal Gear Solid 3 I remember just being a phenomenal story and I could replay very easily and always find something new to appreciate about it and um, i mean the two main games that have come out since kind of increase the scope and add a lot of things uh, technically wise but i just uh, haven't found that they kind of hit that same emotional experience as hard as the third game which you know it's it's also set in the past. It's a Vietnam era game it, it, or Cold War era, anyway. It's such an interesting story and kind of creating like a retro version of a lot of these things that you might recognize. Like instead of a walking Metal Gear robot, it, it's like a rolling tank that can launch a nuclear missile and kind of downgrading everything actually makes it really interesting. You know, so blast to play and, you know, characters you actually care about and a story that actually engages you. So, you know, top tier video game from Hideo Kojima, who's now we've got this Death Stranding game coming out, which looks absolutely bizarre, but I'm very curious to play it. I think Konami kinda of booted him, like uh, off of the Metal Gear franchise, and now they're you know, he was gonna do a Silent Hill game and they fired him, I think. Or forced him to quit basically. Uh the falling out, so now he started his own company where he can do weird looking stuff with Mads Mickelson and Guillermo Del Toro. So Yeah,
0: yeah and that, you know, Metal Gear is one of those franchises. I'm quite surprised he hasn't made the transition into film. And you know, uh, I mean,
1: they're almost like films already. It would almost feel like it would defeat the purpose. Yeah, yeah
0: obviously, the Splinter Cell games are based on Tom
1: Clancy yeah. novels. I think is it Tom Clancy. You know, if you made it without Michael Ironside's voice, like it would immediately not work. Yeah, like yeah. I, I think Metal Gear is sort of the same way. Even within the games themselves, like on the, the most recent one. One thing I did like about it is they replaced David Hayter with uh, Kiefer Sutherland, Oh, and it, no, like it just no, no. doesn't work nearly no, as Dave, well. David <laughs> David Hayter is he is he is. Um... I I know I know I know. Oh, so, what's his name? What what is Snake's
0: name? Uh, Solid Snake. Solid uh,
1: Snake, yeah. 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 Or uh, Naked Snake, or Old yeah. Snake, or whichever Snake, depending on which game you're playing. Yeah. You you, you can't change his voice,
0: no. That's that's sacrilege. No.
1: It, it's sort of fine the way it is. Like the video game's the right medium for that. You don't really. Not everything needs to be a movie just because it's popular. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah.
0: My number two, obviously, you know, we talked about the fact that Red Dead Redemption stopped me in my tracks going through Skyrim. And then just as I was thoroughly immersed in Red Dead Redemption, another game came along. Obviously, Red Dead Redemption is made by Rockstar. And in 2013, Rockstar released uh, their fifth game in the Grand Theft Auto Saga.
1: Why did I move here? I guess it was the weather. Or the, uh, I don't know, that thing.
0: That magic. You see it
1: in the movies. I wanted to retire from what I was doing, you know? From that, that line of work. Be a good guy for once. A family man. So, I bought a big house. Came here, put my feet up, and thought I'd be a dad like all the other dads. My kids would be like the kids on TV. We'd play ball and sit in the sun, but you know how it is.
0: Grand Theft Auto 5. Now up until that point I have to admit I had never played a Grand Theft Auto game. I had not played them on the PlayStation and I hadn't played games like Grand Theft Auto Vice City or San Andreas and you know for whatever reason just the whole idea of the games didn't appeal to me but Grand Theft Auto 5 was a jump-up in quality like I'd never seen before. The way the game was marketed with those incredible trailers with some just fantastic music like Skeletons by Stevie Wonder. It just looked like this whole next-generation gaming experience that I just couldn't pass up on. And literally from the first couple of hours of playing it, I was hooked like i have never been hooked on a game before. This was 2013, so my first child was probably um, about one and a half. (laughs) Got to be honest with you, Martin, confession time. (laughs) If my wife and child had left me for about three months... As long as I had an electrical supply, a sofa, and a fridge with snacks, I probably wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> All I cared about was this game. It completely absorbed me, and I didn't even bother with the multiplayer version, which I know is still going strong You know, six years later. It was the first video game to reach a billion dollars in sales You know, in, I think, less than a week or thereabouts, which is ridiculous. It just completely blew me away, and that single-player campaign is... Probably the most I've ever been immersed in a game. And again, much like Mass Effect 2, there's multiple different outcomes you can have in that game depending on how you take the three main characters. By the time that game ended, I've heard a lot of people who finished the game with the characters turning on each other and just one or two of the characters making it. My own personal experience of the game is I managed to make all three survive and it was just a perfect ending. But it was the sheer scope of the game. It was the fact that when I'd actually explored that initial city that you can just fully explore and do absolutely anything in, you actually realise that there's 147 square miles of, of this huge island of San Andreas that you can just explore and inhabit. You can do any number of things. And then when you get to the actual heists later on in the game where you're planning your first bank heist, you, you can go in all guns blazing and pay the consequences of potentially losing you know, your, your, your teammates or not getting away with as much money. Or you can take the extra bit of time to plan in meticulously and to go in well planned, get a guy in that deals with the CCTV and, and, and get, get, get a guy in who actually silences the alarms and just go in the quiet route. And if you do that, you can get far much more money. And it's the whole immersive quality of, of the game. And there's little things where, you know, it, it, you've got a mobile phone, your character can access and look at a mini version of the internet. You can look at, I think it's called Life Changer, which is their version of Facebook, which is just a complete parody, but it's great. You can even
1: go on a stock market. Their, their version of Spithereens.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you can go on the stock market in, in Grand Theft Auto V. When I realized that this was amongst the, the greatest things I, I'd ever seen is when... You're carrying out these assassination missions later on in the game. One of the characters, Franklin, picks up these jobs where he gets money for assassinating people. Usually those people are attached to a big uh, corporation within the game. And what I realized was if, say for example, one day I'm going to go and assassinate the head of a pharmaceutical company. If I buy shares in the rival pharmaceutical company to the one whose head I'm going to assassinate... The following day after the assassination, the shares that I have bought are going to triple or quadruple in value, and I'm going to make a shitload of money. <laughs> and you could actually do it in the game, and it works. And by the end of the game, I had more money than I could spend. But the fact that anything you can think of to do in this game works, the fact that the characters are just just so well written,
1: mind-boggling level of depth. <laughs> oh, the, the level of yeah. depth
0: is just, and I genuinely was just like, I really need to limit how much, how many hours I, I sink into this game a day. But fortunately. Much like games like Batman Arkham City are just perfectly paced. By the time that single player campaign came to an end, as much as part of me didn't want it to end, I was completely satisfied. I've never gone back to it because that single initial playthrough where everything just ended as it should have, much like I wish Game of Thrones had. <laughs> it was just completely perfect. And for me, it stands tall as being one of the greatest games I've ever played. I know that the one thing that will drag me back into gaming now will be... The eventual Grand Theft Auto six. How the hell Rockstar are gonna top five, I don't know. But I've got every faith, given how good Red Dead Redemption 2 was, that they're gonna do it. So there you go, that's my number two.
1: That's fantastic. Number one. Oof, my number one is Dark Souls. What it has to be. It, be. it had to be. It was <laughs> yes. always going to be. I would <laughs> so have been disappointed, be. Martin, if it wasn't. And I I have so much to say about it, I almost you, you you wrote an article for a certain website about it. I wrote an article. About People it. should check that out instead of me going on and on and on. Go on film
0: uk and there was also an episode you did with um, Jamie with Wrong Real where you talked about Dark Souls. Although that
1: wasn't a theme I, of the that episode. That wasn't officially a Dark Souls episode. No. I just hijacked it. Yeah, it was great. It, it was great. It just turned into that. But I, like really, I've played all three games now. I've beaten all three games Um I played the first one more than once at this point. You know, they're all great. I think just the first one's kind of one of those perfect classic things. You know, there's aspects that the sequels improve upon. Um, you know, the third one, like the, the sense of scale is, is up so much that it, it's really impressive. You get, well, I mean, that was the first game that I played once I bought a PlayStation 4 earlier this year. Just seeing what Dark Souls 3 looked like on the PS4 was enough to convince me that, like, yeah, the upgrade was worth it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much fun to play. It's a masterpiece of level design. Uh, the storytelling is so unusual, like it, it, things that are implied without being stated outright. I heard that the, the game's creator, Miyazaki, said, you know, he would read uh, Western fantasy novels and his English wasn't great, so he would only pick up bits and pieces and kind of have to put it together in his mind and he said he sort of wanted to create that experience for a video game where you actually don't get the whole story and you sort of have to fill in things and there's a whole community around just interpreting the story and there's, you know, these weird sort of Gnostic themes that come up where you realize oh, you know, maybe what I thought was the story isn't actually the case and, you know, these things are illusions and there's a whole other aspect and it's a game that rewards the sort of behavior that would break other video games, you know, like back to that warp whistle example, mm. you know, Dark Souls is full of things where you think, like, How did somebody figure this out the first time? And it, like, why put so much care and so much detail at like a whole level into a spot that it almost seems like you're not supposed to even get to? Yeah, now again,
0: you know? I Martin, I've never played Dark Souls. Yes, every time you've written about or spoken about that game, it's it's it sunk in with me because you've said about how difficult the game is, but how it, it's not unbeatable, and with no. enough practice you can beat the game, as, you, as obviously you've proven yourself. You said that you You, yeah, you can play it
1: by yourself and have it be yeah. this sort of quiet, solitary experience. It Like, it can be a really surprisingly thoughtful game. You know, there's these big empty spaces and sort of dignified monsters that are dying that, uh, you know, after you've cleared out an area of enemies, you can sort of wander and think. Or it can be a multiplayer experience where you summon somebody in to help you fight maybe a particularly hard mm. boss, or you can invade them and attack them. And, you know, there's a great sense of community. I think, you know, Sekiro, it's by the same people, but it kind of lacks that communal aspect with the Mm -hmm. multiplayer and with, you know, even just going online and like, oh, this is what this person's theories are about the story. Like, Sekiro's much more straightforward. Again, I haven't played Bloodborne yet. That's sort of the last one I've been saving, which is, it's kind of, it's not a Dark Souls game, but it's sort of unofficially a Dark Souls game. It's also by Miyazaki. And it's instead of medieval fantasy, it's like uh, Lovecraftian, Bram Stoker sort of stuff. That's probably the next video game I'm going to play. Uh, Maybe either that or Alien Isolation. They're both both available (laughs) to me. But, you know, Dark Souls, it's just like this sort of, singular perfect video game experience that manages to be mysterious and rewarding every time you play it you know in the way that like a great work of art can be rewarding to revisit and engage with and saying you know, if somebody tried to make it into a movie, it wouldn't work as a Hollywood movie it would be like an art house mm-hmm. thing because it's so sort of unusual and elliptical and you know you just find yourself coming at it from uh, strange perspectives and uh, you know the, these really fascinating themes that you know clearly so much thought went into. It's a really, really extraordinary video game and, and work of art, I think. So that's my number one pick. Fantastic.
0: Uh, my number one, you mentioned earlier, Martin, that your mother is a fan of the Zelda series.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: yeah it, my number one is a Zelda game. And as I've said... Is,
1: is uh, it the one that people would expect? Or
0: I, I think you've got so many Zelda games over such a long period of time. I think the first one came out in 86 on the NES... And then we've had games like Ocarina of Time on the N64, which a lot of people say is the greatest game ever made. You've got so many others. You've got ones where they tried different graphical styles, and you know these more pastely colours. You've got ones where the main characters look more like little chibi sort of caricatures. Right. Um, things where you know th- there's not this sort of consistent graphical style in the games. And then you've got the most recent one, Breath of the Wild. People like Dave Eves and other people on Twitter who I've spoken to have said it's just an amazing game, and it's a time sink. And a lot of people have said it is their favourite Zelda game. And this is people who were not just familiar with the Zelda games from the more recent ones, but you know have played pretty much the entire series. But you know, as I've said, I'm from a particular generation, and my sort of heart lies back with that 16-bit era. Right. So my favorite Zelda game is The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, which is the third game, and it's the game on the Super Nintendo. It was released in 1991 in Japan, I think in 1992 then in North America and Europe. The first two Zelda games were, the first one was like sort of top down. The second one then was side scrolling. And then yes. the third one went back to top down but with a vast graphical improvement uh as i think made, it was
1: also available on gameboy maybe or gameboy advanced one it, of those it's
0: been it's been done so many, it's been redone yeah. even even the, the game Boy version um links awakening is basically uh, a kind of pared <laughs> right. down version of, of this game
1: but that's the version i've played yeah. yeah
0: but a link to the past for me it is pure warm nostalgia. It is the first time that a game has moved me to tears. You know I played this game all the way through and by the time I got to the end and it tied up all of these little plot threads which by today's comparisons would would, would be they'd come across as twee and simplistic but by the time it got to the end with this incredible end credit sequence where you see all of these little inconsequential non-player characters that you've met and how their stories have ended up like the little boy who's got separated from his father—they they had they, they had a falling out. Early on in the game, you meet the dad. and He's saying, "Oh, Link, can you please help me find my son? He, he's he's lost." And much like you say in Dark Souls, there's these lovely little areas of the game which have got like you know a lot of attention paid to them that you might not even ever find. There was this one little moment in Zelda where I was walking around you know Hyrule, and there was this one little point where there was a section of the river that you just couldn't get into, apart from this one little point which I think you needed. Um, a certain item from later on in the game to knock a stone away or something to get into the river, right. and if you follow the river a certain way, you can get up to a point where you walk under this bridge. When you go under the bridge, it cuts to this little scene under the bridge where you've got this little boy, the one that's mentioned earlier, in a tent, a little campfire, and you meet him, and he tells you about how he's fallen out with his dad, and he ends up giving you a little item, which I just think was was like a um, a glass jar that you could trap fairies in, which would give you, um, reju- um, you know, rejuvenate right. you. But it was that little moment where I thought, do you know what? There's nothing signposting in this little moment in the game, but it's here if you take enough time to go and find it. This was the first game which had an epic feel to it. And I'm playing through the game. You're in Hyrule. Uh, you've got to rescue Princess Zelda. You, you do these three big dungeons and you do all of these other little side quests. And then you gets to the, what you think is the end. All of a sudden, this wizard, Argonim, turns out to be Ganon the main big Zelda Mm bad guy. He's taken human form in order to collect all of these uh, princesses and harness their powers in these crystals. You get to what you think is actually the the end point of the game. You know you're not even near the halfway point because at that point you get transported into the dark world which is like this mirror sort of twisted version of the light world you've just come from and the whole scope of the game just balloons and mushrooms in front of you and you just think it was the first time I ever thought wow, this is big you know and and again by today's standards it's really small and you could probably you know finish it in maybe a couple of hours or a couple of days but back then back in 1992 or 93 or whenever it was I, i you know i played it i remember that this game took up so much time when I should have been studying for my, uh, you know, for, my, for for exams I was doing at the time. It, it was just, no, this was more important to me because this was just so addictive, so immersive. I've since replayed the game on the Super Nintendo Mini Classic. It still holds up. You know, as much as my my sons and, you know, the you know, certainly my, my eight year old he's not that into games just yet where he does a lot of reading although he's now started playing one of the Pokemon games where there's a lot of reading involved so as soon as then I think he's got more of that attention span to do more reading in his games I'm going to be giving him Zelda to play because mm. it, it, there's a lot of text based stuff where you're reading all of these things which, are, which characters are telling you I just know it'll be a sign of whether or not this game is held up and whether or not it's just me with like a loving nostalgia for the game is if, if he likes it just like he still plays Super Mario World a game which I introduced to him maybe a year or two ago and which he he absolutely loves because 30 or 29 years on Super Mario World still stands up. 27 or 28 years on I'm pretty sure that Zelda A Link to the Past will still stand up because it is one of these timeless classic games where the puzzles, the the problem solving, everything is just perfectly pitched and Today, yeah, it's my, you know, it's my number one on the list, but you could easily interchange it with any one of my top three. But yeah, Legend of Zelda a Link to the Past at the moment is certainly one of my favourite games of all time. That's a fantastic pick. We put things out to social media and we had loads of responses, but we are pushing way, way over two and a half hours now. So I'm going to, unfortunately, I'm going to skip a few. Um, keeping it within the Film 89 team, the, the late Jim Cottle left us a list. His list is The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Goldknight 64, Star Wars Arcade, Red Dead Redemption, and Titanfall. Then our own Hayden Spurrell. He's got Uncharted 4, The Last of Us, Inside, and Little Nightmares, which I've never heard of. Finally, Batman Arkham City. Uh, Steve Amos has just simply replied with, I don't think I can contribute to this discussion outside of FIFA, Madden NFL, NHL, and Grand Prix, all of which are EA Sports games and Mario Kart 8, which I regularly play with my son.
1: It's Uh, like, uh, you know when they say you can tell a lot about a person based on what's on their bookshelf? Yeah, same with games. Yeah.
0: Jacob Rivera, you'll find on Twitter, at JRATM23, and he's a big friend and frequent uh, collaborator with Film89. Also writes for the website. He's submitted a few great pieces recently. Please check them out. He's picked number five, The Getaway, on PlayStation 2. Number four, Metroid, um, on the NES. Number three, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, also on the NES. And number two, Grand Theft Auto Vice City on the PlayStation 2. And his number one, which is many people's number one, is Goldeneye on the N64.
1: The Getaway is a really cool one. That's It's yeah. a bit like Grand Theft Auto as a Guy Ritchie movie, maybe. Uh,
0: we've got loads of responses on Twitter. I'll just keep them to, well, a uh, good, sure. friend, good friend of the podcast, Steven Simpson, at uh, SteveU7, <laughs> who's recently made his um, podcast debut on Wrong Reel. Although he has got his own podcast as well. Please check it out. Number five is Resident Evil 2. Great choice. Number four, Bioshock. Number three, Final Fantasy 7. Again, a game which easily could have made my own list. Number two, Fallout 3. And number one, if you've watched his most recent video today where he opens a 40-year-old packet of Star Trek The Motion Picture <laughs> trading cards, he's actually wearing a Destiny t-shirt. Destiny is his number one. His honorable mentions are Assassin's Creed 2, Mass Effect, Fable 1, and Elder Scrolls Five: Skyrim. And then uh, we've got a couple from Facebook. Mark Saunders has got number 5, Super Mario Galaxy. Number 4, Goldmine 64. Number 3, World of Warcraft.
1: Okay. That, that's like a whole area of video games yeah. that I have sort of danced around and haven't really yeah. got into. It's the sort of massive multiplayer online yeah. stuff.
0: And if... You know, James Hancock has often said that he's sunk thousands of hours into it or thereabouts.
1: Uh, I can believe that. that It's the kind of game that, you know, it's like a career.
0: (laughs) He's gone old school with number two, Street Fighter 2 Turbo, and number one, The Last of Us. And as much as I'm a massive fan of the Uncharted games and Naughty Dog, I have not played
1: The Last of Us because... The Last of Us is really good. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Good good story, good characters. Uh, It's good stuff. I I, uh, almost put it on my list. Yeah.
0: And we've got also on Facebook, Robert Allen has picked number five, Chrono Trigger, on the Super Nintendo. Another Super Nintendo game, Super Metroid, which I've recently replayed. And having not initially liked it when I first played it back in 94, I've got to say it now. My God, what a great game. And you're talking about a game that's like, you know, 25 years old and it still holds up. Number three is Final Fantasy VII.
1: I think there's a remake of Final Fantasy VII coming out soon. There is, there is, yeah. It's been long-moved, yeah. The graphics look wild.
0: And again, (laughs) when I saw this, uh, I'd already done my list and put like a rubber stamp on it. When I saw his number two, I thought, Jesus, why is that not on my own list? And his number two is Shenmue on the Dreamcast.
1: Oh, I never had a Dreamcast, but it looked so cool. (laughs) The
0: the Dreamcast is one of the most heartbreaking consoles. It had incredible games. I wish it would have. um, It it was way ahead of its time. It was the first internet-capable console, as far as I'm aware. And Shenmue was just absolutely incredible I I lost hours in that game unfortunately it is one of these big games I actually played to completion and is just some of the greatest gaming memories I've, I've ever had and his number one is The Legend of Zelda The Ocarina of Time on the N64 and finally we've got also on Facebook Lisa Marie Brooks she's picked number five Super Mario Galaxy 2 number four Red Dead Redemption 2 number three Grand Theft Auto 5 number two Street Fighter 5 And number one, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. So all fairly recent choices there. But again, any one of those games you could say, yeah, probably one of the greatest games of all time. So there you go. Uh, that's a pretty exhaustive rundown of Minor Martin's favorite games of all time. Uh, you know, we we have covered video games on the website, but we've never covered them on 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 the podcast. <laughs> and given the fact that we were talking about Black Mirror tonight, then you know, obviously there's a bit of a link there. So Martin, thank you very much. The, the previous two episodes you've been on have been incredibly popular. The episode about the Thing and the episode about the the, the Predator films. Uh you know, it's always a great pleasure talking of your knowledge and enthusiasm is just absolutely infectious. So, you know, please anytime you ever want to pitch anything or come back on, there'll always be a seat here for you at Film Eighty Nine Towers. But where can people find you if they wanna hit you up and chat about films or Dark Souls or or your
1: upcoming audio commentaries? Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at MovieKessler. I think I'm, I haven't quite figured out how to stream for my PlayStation 4 yet. I might try to do a speed run of uh, Dark Souls Ooh. sort of soon. I'll, I'm going to try to figure that out. That's something I want to do to show up to people. Yeah, yeah, lots of podcast stuff on the way, some article stuff on the way. So the best place to find what I'm up to is on Twitter. And yeah, thank you, thank you again. I had a lot of fun. And uh, you
0: can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. You can find myself and the rest of the Film 89 crew at Film89UK on Twitter and Facebook. And you can find us all at film89.co.uk. Please, there's been a few more articles gone up recently. Jacob Rivera and Steve Amos have put out a a few cracking articles. If you're enjoying the podcast, give us a like and a subscribe. But more importantly, please give us an iTunes review. Um, I can't stress how important it is. It seems like I say this every episode, but thank you so much for all the great DMs and all the great positive feedback we get. It, it makes doing this podcast, you know, really worthwhile knowing that you guys and girls out there, uh, you know, are getting some degree of entertainment from us shitheads talking about film and TV. Just, <laughs> you know, it just, it just gives us a reason to live outside of our, you know, daily jobs and, and our families and whatever. And and it's it's something that we're all passionate about, so... You know, you, keep, you guys and girls keep up the interest and we will keep the episodes coming. So thank you very much. And um, as I usually say, stay safe, stay happy, but most importantly, stay classy.